0: A Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Crisis Till Death, Part 6. Joining me to discuss Panic in the Sky and other stories leading up to the death of Superman is returning guest, Scott Honig. Scott, welcome back.
1: Thank you so much for having me back again, again.
0: Yes, this is three in a row. This is a little sub-trilogy within the larger Crisis Till Death event. And not just any trilogy, you know, for each of these episodes, our homework has been a sizable 50-issue chunk of Superman comics. No small feat. I remain indebted to you. I remain very <laughs> grateful that not only are you willing to take on these reading projects, but that you you seem to relish them and you never shy away from them. So I appreciate that.
1: Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I mean, like you, this was also a pretty sizable gap in my Superman reading. So to get to revisit this with you who also is looking to sort of fill that gap. It's been so much fun, so much fun. I'm really looking forward to talking about the the end of it just prior to to the death of Superman.
0: Awesome. Now, that's wonderful. And just to to kind of take our audience behind the scenes for a minute, once again, you know, it's only been a week for the audience, but for us it's been a, a good month and a lot's happened uh, on my end in that time. So Uh, For anyone watching the video podcast, you might notice the layout behind me is a little, not radically different, but it's a little different. Uh, Hurricane Ida came for Flat Squirrel Studios, the home office, the home recording studio. We had some water seeping up through the carpet here um, in the home office. Thankfully, nothing, I mean, other than the carpet, which I wasn't all that in love with anyway, um, nothing was damaged. Um, I got everything out in time. Um, all of us were fine. You know, you look at the news and you look at everything that was happening, cars floating away, you know, stuff like that in the grand scheme of things, it was more of a, yeah, of a hassle and an inconvenience than anything else. And we can deal with that. Um, but what it meant was that I had to empty out everything. (laughs) And, you know, we just, we moved here, you know, just over a year ago. And once I got all of my statues and books and art in here, I was like, all right, that's it. I'm so happy to not have to move this stuff again. And sure enough, all had to come out, had to strip the entire room.
1: Well, listen, uh, you know this, I can relate because in the spring, I also had a basement flood and uh, my, all the carpet and the walls all had to come out. The furniture had to get thrown away. Thankfully, I didn't lose my comics and my books that you see behind me, but you know, it was the same thing. Like nobody was hurt. It was a huge inconvenience. It wasn't a tragedy, but it, it really does. It uproots so much of your life for a huge chunk of time and takes up so much of your thoughts that it's really hard to get the things done that you want to get done.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and so we, so my wife, my wife is actually the handy one, uh, uh, among us. And, uh, so it was thanks to her vision and direction. Uh, we actually, we did everything ourselves. So uh, we painted. So you might notice the walls are now blue behind me. Uh, I think, I was like, well, now that everything's out of here, like, let's take the opportunity to spruce it up a little bit. So just like when, you know, Clark came back from the dead in his, his black costume, I feel <laughs> like the, the office comes back with a little different color. Uh, so I painted the walls. I got colored like I have blue lights over me now. Um, and then we, uh, you know, we, we patched the floor and we sealed it up and we painted it and I have new area rugs and everything came back in and kind of remixed it a little bit. So stuff is, is placed a little bit differently just for, for some variety. So, you know, so we're back in action and not a moment too soon. I mean, we've, I finished bringing everything back earlier today. So, uh, we, we just made it in time for this recording.
1: Wow. Wow. So we have more in common than we think because my wife who's also named Stephanie is also the handy one in, in our family too. So couldn't have been more perfect.
0: It's, you know, it's so funny too. Cause a few episodes ago I had uh, my buddy Jeremy on and same, same case there too, where his wife is the handy one. So, Hey, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, like, I pull my weight. I, I can, I, you know, I, I take the direction relatively well, but yeah, she's the one who knows what to do and, uh, and, and got us, got us where we needed to go. You know, I, the, the the last couple of things I want to say about this, one is, you know, they always say, you know, you don't, you don't know, you know, appreciate something fully until, you know, you, you lose it. I, I only, I only somewhat agree with that in this case, because I've really appreciated <laughs> having this room. And I've been vocal about that in these episodes and on social media. I mean, this honestly this was not something i took for granted <laughs> but yeah do i appreciate it even a little bit more now yeah probably <laughs> yeah,
1: that makes sense that makes sense
0: and then the second and final thing about this before we dive into the superman talk is that this isn't you know this mm-hmm. is not anthony desiato story hour i know but i just wanted to i just <laughs> wanted to mention this uh just how much and i know i say this all the time too but how much i love doing the show and I was so excited, you know, to get back into this space generally, but also I was like, I can't wait to get back behind the mic and do this next episode. Um, And to any fellow podcasters or aspiring podcasters out there, some unsolicited advice, record ahead, bank up episodes. If I hadn't done that, uh, Crisis Till Death, you know, we would have had to put it on pause, but thankfully we didn't have to. Um, it's getting a little close. Like I, <laughs> we're recording this the same day that, um, part five came out. Um, so we're only a week ahead now. So I've run, ra- I've run out of episodes, but we made it. So you know, record ahead. It, it comes in handy.
1: Yeah. If I can even speak on behalf of the listeners, and I think I can do that. Cause I'm, I am a listener myself when I'm not the guest. Um, when you do share things about your personal life, that's just as interesting as when you're actually talking about. Superman, because you know, your listeners get to know you over time, they get to care about you, and so they're more invested in you know, when you're talking about Superman and how it relates to you and your life. So, you know, definitely, I don't think you have to apologize to, to your audience for that.
0: That's very nice, but you know, now you've really created a monster because now I'm like, oh, I just keep talking about myself. No, I won't, I won't do that, <laughs> but but I, I appreciate that, and and I and I feel the same way from shows that I listen to. It's like it is great to kind of get that insight, and and uh, yeah, I think it does kind of. give a little more context for for what you know is discussed uh on the show uh a a couple of i guess somewhat related things as far as what else has been going on you know because again we recorded a bunch of these and then they've been they've been coming out but i haven't been recording uh, for a little while so a few installments ago uh, jeremy and i covered the ruby spears superman cartoon from 1988 and we chatted for just about two hours and we, we talked about the entire 13-episode series. And when we were done, I said to myself, all right, like I, I'm done. Like, I, I've said everything I need to say about the Ruby Spears Superman cartoon. Like, I don't think I would do another episode on this. I think I'm good. Like, this is great. And then Dan Greenfield from 13th Dimension, who was also the guest for part one of Crisis Till Death, he <laughs> emails me and he's like, hey, do you want to do uh, count down the top 13 episodes of Ruby Spears? <laughs> And my first response was, but there were only 13 episodes. So this is real easy. Here's the IMDB list of episodes. (laughs) And then I was like, yeah, sure. Like I'm, you know, I can, I can rank them and I can kind of talk about the show's unique place in the, in the Superman mythology. And he was on board with that. And uh, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. And I'm thankful to Dan as always for the opportunity to write for 13th Dimension. Uh, So for anyone who uh, wants to know how I would rank the all 13 episodes of Ruby Spears, uh, you know, head on over to 13th uh, com. But it's like, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. I was like, <laughs> all right, I guess, I guess I got some more. <laughs> yeah. But
1: that article is a really nice companion piece to that episode that you did with, with Jeremy too. So, uh, you know, I would recommend for those who've listened to the episode, definitely read the article. You'll enjoy it.
0: Well, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. I'm real happy with how it came out. It was, it was, it was fun to do. And, by the time people are listening to this episode, there might be another article from me at 13th Dimension all about this uh, Stern Ordway Jurgens era that you and I have been discussing.
1: Interesting. So all right, I'm going to have to check that out. Either,
0: either as people are listening or watching to this, or maybe a little bit thereafter, not quite sure, but uh, yeah, I've got something else in the works. So uh, yeah, I do, I you know kind of to your point, I do somewhat look at them as, you know, like as companion pieces. Like obviously the articles can stand on their own. And I know there are plenty of people who just go to Dan's site who they'll read the article. They might never check out the podcast. Um, but for those who who do both, I think they, you know, you do kind of see how they fit together, which is cool. Um, and, you know, kind of on, on that note of of 13th Dimension readers in particular, uh, Dan put up an article. Uh, when he was on part one of this event where we talked about the John Byrne Superman run. So Dan put up an article uh, about the podcast and about the Byrne run. Generally, we picked up so many new listeners, uh, to this podcast, which is great. And I really appreciate it. I welcome anyone who's new to the show. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. I hope you go back and check out the past ones. Um, you know, again, if, if you like what you're hearing, uh, you know, please rate and review on, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, if you're on YouTube, you know, thumbs up and subscribe. It's, it is greatly appreciated and it does help other people find the show, uh, aside from just feeding my ego, which, you know, there's there's that as well. So anyway, I think, that's, I think that's all the business that I have. Is there anything you want to bring to the table, Scott, before we dive in?
1: Uh, no, I'm just okay. excited to, to talk about these comics.
0: <laughs> all right, let me pull up my handy spreadsheet here. Uh, to, as we always do, lay out the, uh, the specific issue numbers that we are discussing. Okay, so for this episode, we read Superman 60 through 73, Action Comics 670 through 683, Adventures of Superman 483 through 496, and Man of Steel uh, numbers 4 through 17. Uh, so that's what we read for this conclusion of our sub trilogy here um you know panic in the sky was was kind of the big tentpole uh, story of this batch of reading um as i've done in our past installments i want to want to throw you the ball first i mean what were your overall impressions did you enjoy this leg of the reading how did it compare to the, the prior two like what was what was your overall uh, experience uh
1: i definitely enjoyed it i will say Even though, so it's listed as about the same number of issues as our previous two legs. However, it ended up being much more because every issue included was on the DC app. So I I had nothing I could skip. (laughs) So I I read everything. This is 13 months of comics, right? If you do that math, that's 13 months, over a year of comics with titles coming out. Like a Superman book came out every week of every month for 13 months that we read this thing. So that's a lot of comics. That's a lot of comics. And I found this leg to be kind of uneven. Um, it, it almost felt to me like it was two separate things. The beginning of the run, the beginning of it, I'd say even up through Panic in the Sky to me, it's not that I found the stories to be bad, but I kind of found them to be a little forgettable. And I think that that's probably the the run where the editorial and creative team started coming up with the notion that they should kill Superman, because I don't know that those stories really warranted a lot of attention, at least positive attention. So I think that's probably where they started planning it. And the, and I love the death of Superman, but the shame of that being planned so far in advance is I actually think the run gets better as it moves toward that death of Superman. So it, it's sort of like they might not have needed to kill him based on the strength of the comics that led right up to it. It, you know, it's, It is what it is, but uh, that's kind of where I see it as a whole
0: okay fair enough um so a couple of things to unpack there first you know you mentioned all of the issues being on the app you know i dump on that dc app uh, on an on an basically an episodic basis here so in fairness uh all of the issues assigned for this episode are on the dc app and uh i have to give them credit because they do have their um they have there are a number of I, I think they call them storylines on the app or or but essentially they're reading lists and so there is actually um you know superman the triangle era volumes one two and three i the way the way you the look on your face tells me that you were jumping between titles weren't you
1: i had three
0: oh i'm sorry four
1: separate tabs open <laughs> For each of the titles, and I kept having... I memorized the order at a certain point. I'm like, all right, I know Superman comes first, then adventures, then action, then menace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. Part of me is like I shouldn't have even said anything. So
1: No, that's fine. <laughs> but it
0: actually... So this was the, my easiest reading assignment um, because I just opened up that triangle-era list, and they were just all there in a row. So, I, so again, yeah. I'm, look, I'm all about fair play here. So credit where credit's due, this was one chunk of Superman comics where the DC app has its act together. I would like to see them carry that through elsewhere, but look, for, for purposes of this episode, it, it did what it needed to do. Um, and as, as far as the death of Superman, I, that's obviously going to be our subject for for the next episode, and uh, Bernie Gerstmeier, who was here for uh, for part two of Crisis Till Death, he'll be back for that, and, and reign of, of the Superman. So we'll get into this more there, but um, and I haven't done my full research yet. I, I will very shortly because I'm recording that in a couple of days. But, um, you know, my understanding of the death of Superman is that it, you know, wasn't planned so far in advance because they were building towards the wedding of Lois and Clark. And it was the uh, basically like the the corporate interference. The Lois and Clark TV series was in the works. And of course, that was going to really play up the romantic triangle and the romantic tension. And Uh, you know, it was decided to, you know, kind of, you know, put the brakes on the Lois and Clark marriage in the comics. So they had to come up with something else to do. And at their super summit, so I guess maybe a year in advance, I I don't, you know, I don't know exactly that the timeframe, but you know, Jerry Ordway had, it became a running joke with every time they had one of these super summits and they got stuck, he'd be like, oh, let's just kill him. And of course, this time when he said it, it actually stuck and they, and they went with it. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a good question as far as exactly when it was decided and what effect that had on the stories leading up to it. Uh, You know, I, I will say for myself, overall, I actually enjoyed this quite a bit. I don't necessarily disagree with you that, Some of the stories were on the more forgettable side. I mean, especially when you compare this to the prior two episodes that you and I did: uh, Exile, uh, Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite, um, you know, Mark or Day of the Krypton Man, Mark of the Krypton Man. You know, there were some of these stories that like really stand out and made an impression. I don't know that you had quite as much of that here. However, I just felt like the subplots really carried the day here. And the all the work that the creative teams had done with the supporting cast to really build them up and give them, you know, the, their own stories, that's what I found myself really hanging on to and enjoying a lot. So it, it so overall, it still worked for me. And it's funny, I, I had written this down. I was like, you know, it did kind of feel relatively low key. But knowing what's coming, I, I didn't mind it. And in fact, I, I actually kind of savored it because it's like, well, I, I know, I know what's coming next. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's epic and it's action packed and it's emotional and it really puts you through the ringer. Um, so the fact that some of these stories, and again, there's still plenty going on, like, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. There's still plenty going on, but I do think it it is a little bit more on the low key side. But again, I didn't mind that.
1: Yeah, the it being low key without you know massive events wasn't necessarily what what turned me off at certain points. There were there were storylines. I mean, you know, early on we had this blackout event, right? Which totally confounded me because not only didn't do we now have the triangle numbering, but every <laughs> part of blackout had its own numbering. So you're following the triangles, but you're also okay. This is blackout part three, and it it, it I, to me that was just. It was like a bridge too far. Um it, it just um it just felt like um it felt a little bit like treading water. It felt a little like treading water. Um and I don't mean that to sound as negative as it's probably coming off right now. Um I did like the the advancement in Lois and Clark's relationship, although based on what we talked about last time that the, the sort of proposal came out a little out of nowhere, all of a sudden to see them, you know, have this sort of deep emotional connection also feels a little bit unearned, but I was glad to see at least they were moving it forward at the same time. Um, I don't know, I there, there were just, there were mo- more issues in there that I just felt like, okay, I, I could have done without that one. Um, even though it might've moved this forward a little bit or that forward, you know, based on the subplots but but overall yeah i did enjoy i did enjoy
0: i I mean i I get what you're saying and you know (laughs) in fairness (laughs) i don't know that there's any any storyline that we've read for these episodes that i've cared less about than husk and the exile world could not care less about it and it was i think at the end of of one of the issues or maybe the final issue dealing with that where professor hamilton has this line where he's like i don't know what just happened and i was i was like yep <laughs> you and me both buddy
1: <laughs> yeah there were a couple of characters and and plot lines that i i didn't even know what to say about them in my notes i just wrote like the the war worlders, ugh the hellgramite ugh <laughs> you know even the cerberus oh plot, god which which had dragged on really for for months and months and months starting way way back in i think the either the first bunch of issues we read or early in the second and it it all comes to a head here and and you know it seemed so monolithic when we didn't know what it was <laughs> and then it was just really disappointing that it was revealed to be some like generic monster with interchangeable heads and, and I was like, that's Cerberus? I don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the thing about that, that's probably right below Husk for me. It's like yeah, right right yeah. there. The thing that was that really it w- added to my disappointment was that, you know, they kept teasing that, you know, Cerberus would be revealed. And I kept thinking, well, yeah. like, oh, is it someone we know, you know, or yeah, something, some kind of twist where it'd be like, all right, it was worth the payoff. It was worth this villain being unseen in the shadows for all of these issues and then yeah it turns out to just be these these heads <laughs> that are, that take turns on, you know on the by was just like ah you know not n- not not the strongest um but yeah you're right Helgramite was i mean almost all of the titles you know we again we're dealing with four titles at this point you know almost all of them had you know something like that and you know kind of on that note though And this isn't even a positive or negative, but, you know, you really do get to see where the interests lie for each of the creative teams, right? Because Simonson and Bogdanov, like, they definitely did most of the work with Cerberus. Jerry Ordway, I think the Husk and Exile World stuff was him going way back to, um, you know, like the Marv Wolfman period. I mean, this started a long time ago. Uh, you know, Roger Stern did most of the work with Helgramite. So like they each, you know, they each kind of had, and now I'm using examples of things that we happened not to like, but there's plenty of other stuff that I, you know, I, I did enjoy and, and perhaps you did as well. Same. Um, but yeah, like you definitely got to see what, like, you know, what characters and stories they were interested in pursuing.
1: For sure. And look, the plus side of having an, an issue of Superman every month meant that for some of the storylines that I didn't love, it's over in a month. Right. So like for me, one of the one of the low points was the blaze Satanus war or Satanist war. I don't know how it's pronounced, but um, but there are four issues and then it was done, you know, a month of time. So we push that aside. and <laughs> Yeah, no, there there is something to be said for that. No,
0: I felt the same way, too. Like, I, you know, and you mentioned that I've always said Satanist, but your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Me but, too. You I know, that, that that story arc, you know, is another example. We've talked about this in other episodes and I've gone on record and I, I, I don't know that this will ever change. I'm not a huge fan of Superman and the supernatural. It just same. I don't love it. You know, I want to give a shout out though. I, I was mentioning our audience earlier. I want to give a shout out to uh, you know one of our audience members, Douglas. Um, he he has been messaging me throughout this uh, this run of episodes because this is his favorite period as a Superman reader, and he acknowledges that he is likely in the minority on this. But he loves horror. I mean, not loving har- har- loving horror doesn't put him in the minority, but <laughs> loving the mix of of horror and Superman and 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 the supernatural with with Superman. Uh, so, you know, for him, I think, you know, like he really enjoyed these stories and, and that's the thing that's cool. I mean, there's, you know, it's something for everyone and, you know, what we might not like someone else does and vice versa. So it's all good. And, you know, it's, it's actually, it was cool to hear that from him. Cause it's like, well, at least <laughs> at least someone enjoyed it. You know, it's like, I'm glad that, you know, there was a reason for this. It speaks to to some portion of the audience, however large or small it might be.
1: And we've always said that, that, that just because a story or an arc or, or a theme or something isn't to our particular liking doesn't make it wrong, doesn't make it, you know, we, we would never say it shouldn't exist. I'm thrilled that there's an audience for it. I'm thrilled that someone like Douglas, and, and if Douglas likes it, I'm sure lots of people like it. What is, what's a little bit frustrating as a reader trying to read all of the books in this period, which you kind of have to do because the subplots extend over all of the titles, is that you're sort of forced to read some of the, you know, the genre stuff that might not be to your, to your liking. So for, for us, not loving the supernatural elements of Superman, it's not like I could say, okay, I just won't read that title. I'll read the other three, I just won't read that title because you can't and still be able to follow. I say that, but like, I mean, there's recaps in every issue. So you, it, you probably could skip an issue and they recap it for you, but you know, we're going to read them. all,
0: right? Yeah, no, y- your point is well taken. I mean, that's true. I mean that, you know, when we talk about this triangle era, you know, generally it's like, you know, that's sort of the catch with it. I mean, on, on the one hand you have four creative teams, you know, working in unison in a way that not to be hyperbolic, but I don't know that we've seen before or since. I mean, the level of coordination, um, and, and, and again, you know, kudos to, you know, Mike and the editor for, you know, uh, show running this, right. Um, you know, it really creates this, you know, basically like television show feel, you know, as you're reading these comics. And so, you know, I, I, I really appreciate what they did, but it's like, yeah, it does, you know, you are kind of forced to read all of them. I mean, like you said, you, could skip some there's they give you enough context in the other issues but uh i don't know that it would be as as rich a reading experience um if you did that so yeah you are kind of stuck wading through some stuff that you might not love
1: yes and at the same time i completely agree with you there were moments where even at the times when i wasn't loving a particular issue or particular storyline where i just had to stop and marvel at no pun intended but I, i had to stop and marvel at just how cohesively these four different creative teams were able to weave the subplots, even while handling the things that that particular team was handling at the time as their main plot. You know, they were all dealing with Lois and the Daily Planet. They were all dealing with Jimmy Olsen. They were all dealing with Lois's family. They were all dealing with the Kents. They were all all dealing with all of that. And to know which bits had to go in each issue—I mean, that is an absolutely monumental feat. That I, I, you're right. I don't think we've really seen that before or since. Uh, I,
0: I would, I would have loved to, to be in the room with them at the Super Summit when they were discussing the, the Jimmy Olsen arc that we read, where this poor guy. Loses job after job after job. Camera gets broken, gets evicted from his apartment. Car gets tow- car gets snowed in, car gets towed. I-, I mean, they put this kid through the ringer issue after issue after issue. And it's like you could just see it like on a bulletin board. It's like, okay, Jimmy has a rough month. It's like, all right, I'll take the eviction. I'll take the car towing. <laughs> like, my heart broke for this kid. Um, now my sympathy only went so far because, you know, he could have gone home to his mother, but but pride right. kept him from doing that. So there, you know, or he, of course, he could have reached out to Lois and Clark. But, you know, overall, I actually thought, I mean, I enjoyed his arc as much as it was painful to watch <laughs> that character, you know, go through all of that. But, you know, I really felt like it as much as Jimmy had had storylines and we talked in, in, in our prior episodes about, you know, the tension between him and Superman and that was an interesting uh, angle to play, but this was really his own thing. Like we were really just kind of following him on his own path. And I thought that was cool. I thought it, it kind of made me appreciate Jimmy Olsen uh, in a way that I, you know, I, I don't
1: usually. Right. Cause as that sidekick character, you know, we see him maybe imperiled here and there as he's, you know, covering a story and then Superman rescues him and that's, sort of the end of it but to see him you know go through his own his own conflicts and you know see him you know he's he's gets real down at certain points i mean there's a lot of woe is me sometimes it goes a little too far for my particular liking like i my sympathy only extended so far um but it was nice to see him come out the other end and and ultimately be a stronger person and a stronger character because of what he had gone through. And he ultimately learns to, you know, that it's okay to lean on his friends and his family in times of, of dire straits.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we have so much more to unpack about this run. I mean, Lex (laughs) Luthor, the second, my goodness, there's, there's a lot to say there. Um, but you know, as I'm, as we've made our way now through the beginning of the triangle era and, and again, 98% of this has been new for me. Um, I actually have to go back to the to the Jeff Loeb Joe Kelly era that we started this podcast series with, and you were my guest on episode two, and we talked about the first half of the Loeb Kelly era, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and a couple of thoughts because I I couldn't I couldn't shake this as I was as I was reading these stories. First of all, you know I had said, and I actually wrote in a Thirteenth Dimension article at the time that I liked how the Loeb Kelly era. Upgraded the technology of Metropolis and made it the true city of tomorrow. And what I said at the time was that I liked it because Metropolis didn't have as distinct an identity as Gotham, for example. I have to, I have to retract that after these stories, and I'm happy to. That's part of why I'm doing this podcast. I'm enriching my knowledge and understanding of the character, and I'm happy to say that. No, I, I, I was, I think I was wrong. Um, reading these stories in particular. Man, you get a real good sense of the inner workings of Metropolis. We have a blackout. We have a union strike. We have um, protests about the hiring practices of the Daily Planet. I mean, there's a lot going on, um, which I really, really appreciate. I mean, what did you think about that?
1: Yeah, the the flavor of, of Metropolis is there. You know, it's got its little corners that they keep revisiting. You know, the Daily Planet is, you know, it's always or it should be anyway, always front and center. Um, but even just like Bibbo owning a bar that people occasionally go to, you know, that's there. Even the, you know, we talked, we joked about it. I think that the, the taxis, that they're always $6.50. Um, you know, that's part of the flavor of it. The apartment building, the, the doorman outside the apartment building, um, you know, who, you know, they greet on their way in. It, there, there is a flavor to Metropolis. You feel, as as a reader, like you are a citizen of Metropolis. I don't know that it's fair to say that, um, that you were entirely wrong. I think that there was a flavor to Metropolis in this particular era, and I think as you move through the death and rebirth of Superman, leading up to that Loeb kelly era i think some of it just gets a little bit diluted that it loses something so it's not that it wasn't there it's that it just hadn't been there maybe for a little while and then it was re-established in a new under a new paradigm
0: fair enough that's a fair point um and you know when i eventually get to the the latter half of the 90s i'm sure uh, my re because that will be a reread for me uh but i'm sure that will confirm uh, what you've said but yeah, no, I was just really taken by, uh, like you said, the flavor and and just the texture that they give to Metropolis. You you do, you know, in the Blackout story in particular, this five-part storyline where uh, Superman suffers amnesia and he, as, as does uh, his former opponent, uh, Mr. Z, right? And they end up on Dinosaur Island. And while that's going on, Metropolis is suffering this blackout. Honestly, you know, the Dinosaur Island stuff... Was okay, but I was vastly more interested, you know, in, in what was going on uh, with Metropolis dealing with the the, the blackout. So, uh, you know, again, I really appreciate the work that went into building out the city of Metropolis. And you mentioned Bibbo. You know, I, there there were a few issues and, and stories in, in this in this uh, leg of our reading that you know really really tugged on the heartstrings and I, I think really showed the, the the heart and the humanity of these characters I and mean, a couple of real strong Superman moments that I, I want to talk about but uh, particularly when he's dealing with the abusive neighbor next door um, but you know Bibbo is such a big-hearted kind-hearted generous guy I mean it was it was touching you know that he wins the lottery and all he does is give. You know, he just gives, he lets his friends drink for free, and he, you know, he donates toys for the kids, and he takes in Jimmy Olsen, um, you know, it was great, and again, of course, this is the Hobbs Bay, aka Suicide Slum area of Metropolis, that's, you know, meant to be, uh, you know, the, the underbelly of the city, but, you know, you you, know, you see this beacon of, of goodness there in Bibbo, um, yeah, I love it, and it's a nice counterpoint, again, we spend so much time in, you know, LexCorp Tower and the Daily Planet, but to really get, to spend time with the people, uh, you know, uh, down below, it was really cool.
1: I agree. I agree. Now you mentioned Mr. Z, and I have to go back to him. I had I had one overwhelming thought as Mr. Z continued to be a presence in the book, in the books. Um, are you familiar with the SNL skit from a few years ago called David Pumpkins with Tom Hanks? Mm-hmm. The Halloween sketch sorry okay so they they basically did this Halloween sketch where they're simulating a ride at an amusement park that has a hundred floors of fright and you go into this spooky elevator and every floor the doors open up and there's something really creepy that happens But then Tom Hanks shows up in this yellow orange pumpkin suit and he and two skeleton people just sort of dance. Weirdly, and then the doors close and they're gone. And they keep showing up, and the people in the elevator are getting fed up because it's not scary. It's just weird. They don't get it. And at a certain point, they say, How much David Pumpkins is in this? And the elevator operator says, 73 out of 100 floors. And they go, Why did you go all in on David Pumpkins? And that's how I felt about Mr. Z. Like, why did you go all in on Mr. Z? He wasn't that great a character to begin with and then to keep throwing him at us in a storyline that made to me just no sense was the two of them amnesiac on dinosaur island i i also was so disinterested i just wanted to get back to metropolis
0: uh, I, I don't disagree. And I I think we probably had a similar reaction because again, I didn't really know anything about the Blackout story. You know, going into this reading, obviously I had heard Panic in the Sky. I had seen it in back issue bins rummaging through as a kid, but um, um, Blackout <clears throat> had really escaped my radar. So I knew next to nothing going in. And I I, I think my first thought was like this, like, this guy again? You know, it felt like they kind of got whatever mileage they could out of him previously. And, you know, the setup for Blackout, and that comes very early in, in the, the reading for this episode, but, uh, you know, Professor Hamilton is creating this device for Superman to allow him to see the the fortress in the Arctic, which, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, I, this is the only time we deal with the fortress in this run of uh, uh, of issues.
1: I believe you're right. This, yeah. yeah,
0: this this leg of reading was real, real, real light on fortress, Krypton. I mean, there's no eradicated, none of that. Um, obviously we'll get back into that in reign of the Superman, but for now they, that really took a back seat, uh, which on that note, you see a lot of that. I mean, there, are, you know, we don't spend much time with Cat Grant this time around, for example, we right. spend very little time with the Kents. Um, so there's, right. there's really an ebb and flow to the subplots and the, su- and the supporting cast. Oh, again, overall, I think it, I do think it works well. Um, you know, maybe with some exceptions, but I, you know, I think there's enough variety and you know stories and characters weave in and out before you can get you know too tired of something. Um, but anyway, so Professor Hamilton is creating this device to allow Superman to you know observe the Fortress, so he doesn't have to fly there all the time to check on it. And that's when Mister Z interferes and messes up with the device. And I, and again, they they both lose their their memory. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know how much their escapades on on Dinosaur Island really added. The only aspect of it that I did think was interesting was the decision to leave Mr. Z there at the end and not bring him to justice, this idea that, you know, and and Mr. Z even said, like, I'm treating this as the first day of, of the rest of my life. And it's like, well, maybe this is an opportunity for redemption. And I don't, I don't know if that character ever comes back. I don't think so, to be honest. I, I hope not. <laughs> So I don't know if we'll ever get an answer as to you know uh, you know what what became of him. But that was the only thing that I was like, oh like that's kind of interesting. Like that moral, you know, quandary. It's like, do you bring him? He doesn't remember what he did. Um, you know, it, might it be worthwhile to give him a chance to be a better person now uh, that he's this blank slate? But other than that, yes, I was far more interested in the and the, in the actual blackout, not the blackout of his mind.
1: Right, right, right. The the setup though works because when he does return and he has his memories back uh the the conflict becomes you know metropolis essentially bl- not blaming him but but saying like we were dealing with this where were you you're the one who's supposed to be here helping us during times like these and you were nowhere to be found and and so superman has to sort of deal with that not that it was his fault but certainly he has to you know take ownership of the fact that he, he has, to some extent, lulled the Metropolitans into a sense of sort of false security that Superman, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, like they believe that he will be there when they need him and he can't always be. And so the Blackout, you know, storyline gave him a reason to not be there. I just don't love the reason, but I like the fact that he wasn't there.
0: Yeah, I like that too, and and yeah, like you said, I mean that does point out these larger questions, and we've you know we've addressed the, this this on the show before because I think it's fascinating. It's like yeah, if he does too much for people, um, you know, might they become too reliant, and then they can't take care of themselves, or they're more likely to put themselves in dangerous situations because they know they have this safety net. It, I mean, it really does bring up some interesting, uh, you, you know, questions on that on that front. Um, the one other thing I, I want to uh, jump back to about the the Loeb kelly era because i don't want to forget because there was mm-hmm. so there was the metropolis piece but the other thing that i i was thinking i feel like this triangle era was more the impression i get as the reader is that it was far more democratic and equal and and generous because and i haven't i haven't i'm not charting this but I believe that, you know, when we talk about these crossover stories and, you know, again, Blackout was five parts, Panic in the Sky with Epilogue and, and Prologue, I think it was eight, um, you know, the, the, the blaze Satanus War, that was, uh, that was just like four. But anyway, however many issues it is. I do believe that it varies in terms of which title the arc starts and ends in. That is not the case at all in the Loeb Kelly era. It is the part one is always in Superman by Loeb, and the final part is always in Action Comics by by Joe Kelly. And, you know, we talked about that when when we when we discussed that era that, you know, it was it was clear as a reader, even even not going even without going into interviews and and behind the scenes stuff at the time, it was very clear as a reader that those were the two guys, and I think even more so Loeb, who were really driving the line and and dictating what the stories were going to be and you know for better or worse and your mileage on that will vary i mean I, you know if, if you if you love that era or if you hate it you know i i don't know but uh it was just interesting to compare that and that definitely stood out where i was like yeah you definitely have more variety in terms of who's driving here
1: no you're absolutely right about that and 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 you do see um you do see a real evenness and fairness when you look at the four titles that we're dealing with like even man of steel which is the new edition it's still the relatively new addition to the line and pretty much as soon as it debuts it's just a part of the line like it's not this they don't treat it as a secondary title to try to get readers on board and maybe that's the benefit from a marketing standpoint of the triangle numbering is that you know now that man of steel is the fourth book in the series every single time that you are you are necessarily on board with it you know i mean the creative team is also spectacular you know you know, no one's gonna sneeze it louise simonson and john bogdanov but you know they could easily just have sort of you know shoved it in there let it fly under the radar a little bit see if people pick up on it then include it nope it was right there from the very very beginning
0: that yeah they went they went all in uh and then but I will take a commercial break. But while we're talking creative teams, you know, again, I know uh, since I started this podcast, I always focus more on the writing side. But there were a, a couple of things I wanted to say about the art. First of all, uh, Tom Grummet, who I, I've long, I've long enjoyed his work. And you know, as as a kid who started, you know, in in the early '90s with Superman, I mean, I, you know, his work is definitely you know like seared in my in my brain, right along with Jurgens. Um, but the thing that really stood out in this batch of of issues was, I felt like Grummet did the best job of making the characters feel young and and vibrant. Not that the other creators drew them as, you know, old folks, but uh, it, you know, it was the issue where it, it opens with Lois and Clark uh, looking into the oven. They've burned dinner, right? And I just remember I was like, oh like, they look like a young, fun couple. And you didn't really get that so much in, in the other ones. And again, I like the art really, you know, for the most part in, in the other books, but that really stood out. And I I just really appreciated that because it's like, yeah, I mean, as much as they're adults, and I do think what an adult means now versus what it meant, that is different. I, I really sure. do. Um, but but I, I I did appreciate that. Um and then the other thing was uh, Jackson Geis, who who comes on board action comics. Really, just brought this like sexy, like sultry quality to all of the ca- I mean, especially the female characters, but all of the characters, but not in a cheesecakey way. I mean, they just really felt. And it's funny because I know I just talked about how much I liked the the youth that Tom Grummet conveyed here. You know, they definitely felt more more mature. Um, but it it worked in its own way. And I, I so I really those two really really stood out to me a lot. I, I enjoyed the art uh, from those two guys in particular. What about you?
1: Uh, so I have a, I have a note here as well about Tom Grummett. To me, it, his art stood out because it was this perfect blend of classic Superman, like whether you want to you know look at it as like a, a Kurt Swan or or a, or even a Joe Schuster, and this really contemporary, youthful uh, style. It was such a perfect blend. It was dynamic. Um, it, it it just it had life to it. Every Every page, particularly the ones where Superman was flying or moving in some way, really felt, you felt that there was a, a, a kinetic quality to it on the page, that it wasn't this static. Jackson Geis isn't my favorite, but I do agree that, that it, so the first issue or two that he drew, I was really put off. I was starting to really get used to to Bob McLeod on the book. And so I was disappointed that he wasn't there anymore. And Jackson Geist is a very, very different style. Uh, and the first two issues or so, I couldn't quite get into it. And then I I started to, and it was for exactly the quality that you just pointed out, which is, it was this shot of of Lois, and she was just sort of standing with her hand on her hip, and, and she looked like a woman who'd sort of seen some stuff. Like, she's been around, and she's world-weary, but she's but she's smart and she's capable and that's part of what makes her sexy she wasn't she wasn't scantily clothed or anything like that she's perfectly clothed some artists you know later on have drawn her in very little and, and take that or leave that but she's perfectly clothed but she just it's just the way that she comports herself that that makes her sexy and, if, and of course because we're seeing her now in this romantic relationship with clark I think that's a really nice visual movement forward for the character. I
0: I agree completely, and you know it's funny because I think back to just our our last couple of discussions where you know and and as we've mentioned here too the cohesiveness of the line I I feel like this batch of issues did mark a little bit of a shift where we where we did now start to see more variety in the art styles because you know when you go back to what we read for the last couple of of, of episodes. When it was primarily, you know, Ordway, Jurgens, and McLeod on the art, I don't want to say they were identical, but they definitely felt more, uh, you know, again, more, more of a consistent style across the three books. Not to the point yeah, where, you, style. yeah, not where you would, you know, not to the point where you, you know, wouldn't remember who's, you know, who, you know, which book you were reading. But they definitely felt more. Um, you know, uh, in the same vein. Whereas here now, I mean, Bogdanov has a very distinct style. Uh, you know, again, Grummet has this really dynamic, like you said, dynamic contemporary feel. Geis is giving us this more, you know, the mature, sexy look, which works great when we get into all the Lex Luthor II Supergirl stuff. Yeah. Um, and then Jurgens, who I think is still giving us like that classic, but modern, you know, but mm-hmm. modern infused take on the character. So, uh, which is just interesting. I, that was something that stood out to me that you know for as much as you do have this in, intense high level coordination among the creative teams, um, they did allow now for more variety in the art styles, which I just thought was an interesting choice and yeah you know, overall, I guess I appreciated it because I did enjoy most
1: of the art. Yeah no, I, I, I agree. Um, there's one moment and, and I guess we'll talk about it in a bit. There's one sort of two issue back to back thing where I wish the artists had been flipped.
0: Oh, okay. Let's take a commercial break and then we'll pick uh, we'll pick right back up on that because I'm I'm very curious. Yeah. That's a cliffhanger, folks. So don't uh, don't go anywhere as we go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Shadadigans is a weekly podcast by dads sharing their fairly new dad experiences and also just talking about whatever. Listen, relate, and laugh. I was a guest on episode 90, and it was a blast. One of the hosts is a multiple guest of this show, Justin DeVoe. To follow Justin's fitness and cosplay journey, follow him on Instagram at reallifelobo. And if you're interested in starting or continuing your own fitness journey, check out Iron and Honor on Instagram. If you enjoy this show, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I also hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. The support of my patrons enables me to produce this podcast, and patrons get rewards too, including exclusive episodes, advanced listens, and more. Sign up today and get instant access to the back catalog. Visit patreon.com slash Thank you to all of my patrons. I truly appreciate your support. I really do appreciate everyone's support, so thank you to everyone who's a patron. Uh, especially, you know, when you get hit with an unexpected home improvement project, <laughs> It's <laughs> really, really appreciated. All right, what was the two? Par- I can. I think I can guess, but I want. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to step on your toes. What was the two-part story where you wish the artist had been
1: flipped? So there's a pair of Christmas issues. Oh, one. Yeah, one appears in uh, Superman, and the other in uh, Adventures of Superman. And the super the 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 Superman issue was such a standout issue to me. Um it was this story about Superman sort of going annually to like read all of the mail that has come in uh over the course of the year. Yeah, Metropolis it's Mailbag,
0: this, it's a tradition.
1: Metropolis Mailbag. And it's this beautifully layered story because they don't they don't give away what he's thinking and feeling right away. They kind of lead the reader to believe certain things, to question those beliefs and then to supplant them with something new so the first thing that he he sort of says is i don't want to do this i don't want to do this and the only reason that you're led to believe the only yeah the only reason you're led to believe that he doesn't want to do this is because he just doesn't want to it's just too much like he's got enough to do and this is like sort of beneath superman which would be really out of character if that's really how he felt but that's how it seems at first then the story continues and it digs a little bit deeper and it then you they make you believe that it's because people ask for too much or they ask for unreasonable things like they ask for money you know they want to they want superman to help them get rich quick which of course we know he'd never do and that's frustrating but it's not that either that's not the reason the real reason we learn that he doesn't want to read the mail is because he knows he's going to get these letters that are going to remind him that he just can't help everybody. Right? Someone's going to ask for something that he can't deliver on. This little boy is asking for Superman to save essentially save his father who's dying. And that's just not that's just not within his powers, you know, it takes us right back to Superman the movie. He says all these things I can do. And I couldn't save my own father who just had a heart attack. He can't stop it. Um, And there's this beautiful pair of lines where the kid says, but you're Superman. The emphasis on the super. And his reply is, no, I'm Superman. Emphasis on the man. And that was such a powerful Superman moment for me. Right. I loved that issue. I absolutely loved that issue. There was another Christmas episode right afterwards in Adventures of Superman 487, which I found completely forgettable and unnecessary, but was beautifully drawn by Tom <laughs> Grummet. And I wish that the art had been flipped, because I would have loved to have seen Tom Grummet do that story that I really loved that Jackson Geist drew.
0: Fair, fair enough. But I, 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 loved that Metropolis mailbag issue for all of the reasons you just. I don't really have anything to add. I think you encapsulated it uh, beautifully. And and kind of jumping off from that, you know, there were an, a number of stories that, again, you know, plot wise, in a lot of these these issues and arcs, as we've said, you know, some were stronger than others. Overall, this was probably. Plot-wise, maybe a little bit on the weaker side. There were some real standouts. I mean, again, I the Lex the second arc I thought was fascinating. I really enjoyed the Sons of Liberty story uh, with with Pete Ross. So there was there were some really strong moments. We'll talk about Panic in the Sky in, in a minute. Although I'll be honest, I was not all that in love with Panic in the Sky. Um, but there the stories that really stuck with me the most, and that I really made this a worthwhile experience, are, are ones like Metropolis Mailbag, where you see again truly what he. Feels and the limits of his power and his recognition of that. Um, so similarly, I had alluded to this before, but there's this two part story deep into our reading assignment for today. Um, Crisis at Hand, I believe it's called. It's a two part or yeah. It's Man of Steel and it's Superman. And, you know, we've we've met Clark's neighbor, Andrea, you know, in, in passing a bunch of times. And for a couple of issues prior, you know, he's noticing some bruises on her and she's a little skittish, but, you know, he gets distracted or she runs away. You know, it's not enough for him to really piece it all together yet until we get to this two part story where um, a very powerfully drawn sequence, I thought, where, you know, Clark's asleep and he's eventually, you know, uh, you know, woken up by the sound of uh, the, the husband next door beating Andrea And, you know, he intervenes as Superman. And, you know, sadly, as is often the case in these domestic violence situations, um, you know, the wife calls the police to apprehend Superman for breaking in and and hurting her husband. And, you know, for these two issues, I mean, it really, uh, you know, we, I really, as the reader, you really felt Clark's frustration that there was nothing he could do. Like he went as Clark to the local police station and, and tried to press charges and they told him that. He couldn't do that. He's not the victim. Um, and so he really felt uh, stymied. And, and it it just, again, I felt like that frustration came through. And, you know, it put him, again, I, I we've talked about this. I always reject the notion that, oh, it's too hard to write stories for Superman. It's like, no. And this is a perfect example where, just like with Metropolis Mailbag, it's like he has all these powers, but there are some things that those powers can't solve. This was an instance where, you know, the, the, the person he's trying to save needed to want to be saved before he could do anything. And, you know, eventually we get to that point and it's really Lois and Clark more so who are, are intervening in part two of that story. And Lois is banging on the door, you know, and we, we finally have that moment where, you know, Andrea has had a, enough. And, but I just, I thought that was, I was great. And hand in hand with that was, uh, you know, they evoke uh, Action Comics number one because Clark tells the story uh, to to Lois about a similar incident very early on in his career. And we get a little flashback and uh, it, it looks like it's right out of Action Comics number one, the wife beater that, you know, that Superman stops in, in, in Action Comics number one. And, you know, we get a little bit more context for that story. and And what we find out is that, in in this modern retelling of it uh you know superman threw the guy up in the air and and, and dropped him but then he caught him and the idea was like I'll scare him straight right I'll, I'll impress upon him that this is not behavior that will be tolerated and you know what ultimately happens is that that abusive husband kills his wife and you know that's something that haunts Superman and that adds to uh, everything that he's struggling with in this two-parter because he really doesn't know what to do and he's been down the road of making the wrong choice before he goes to pa kent for advice and again like we said the kents don't get a ton of play in these in these issues that we read for this episode but that sunrise conversation between uh clark and jonathan um you know just just really really packed a punch and it wasn't even that jonathan had earth-shaking advice it was just that he was there and he listened and he acknowledged that yeah sometimes it's hard to know what the right thing is you have to trust your gut and do your best
1: yeah no that story also stood out to me i i I thought it was so powerful and so well done you know we forget that at the time it wasn't necessarily as much in the popular disc you know the 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 cultural discourse that when, you know, the neighbor keeps appearing with these bruises and, you know, you ask if she's okay and she's, I fell down the stairs. I, I fell out of bed. I, 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 you know, bumped into the wall. You know, now we sort of recognize them as, as you know, sort of cliches of the, you know, the battered wife. But at the time, and especially for an audience who was probably a little bit younger, you know, the sort of 12 to maybe or 10 to 15 year old, you know, that wasn't something that they automatically knew right that it, these were th- these were the signs and superman could have taken the same route that he took with that sort of call back to the golden age when he was you know still sort of a social crusader like we kind of forget that you know before he was amnesiac on dinosaur island he was you know fighting slum lords and abusive husbands you know that's what he did in his first incarnation and and you know, the, the the answer to this isn't as clear cut as just punch the problem. You know, you can't just punch your way out of it, it's, which is so often, I think, why people level criticisms at Superman. Because it's just so easy for him to, you know, muster all of the strength that he has, which is considerable, and punch a problem or heat vision a problem or freeze breath a problem or whatever. Um, I, I loved this story. I absolutely loved the story and I loved that ultimately the person who, who resolved it was Andrea herself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what, what Clark and Lois did for her wasn't save her was to show her, her own agency so that she could make the change in her own life.
0: Exactly. And you know, going back to this this Golden Age callback, uh, you know, I know you and I both love, you know, Golden Age Superman and that social crusader aspect. And, you know, what was so cool about the story was that, you know, you have those roots of the character honored here, but through a more modern realistic lens you know because it's great in action one when he bursts in and he you know tosses the the wife beater and he's like i'll you know or you know basically saying like take on someone your own size you know sort of thing right and then that's enough but you know sadly as we know in the real world it's like no that's usually not and so uh, again the fact that he was challenged in a different way and really had to work his way through it and you know He ultimately helps the husband, too, in the end, where the guy is contemplating suicide and ultimately decides to go and and get some counseling, which that I thought was a very... I I was pleasantly surprised with the way that bore out. Um, I felt like that was a pretty forward-thinking way to present the story and to show that, again, our sympathy is with her, as it should be, but... At the same time, there is this other aspect to it. And, you know, I'm, this is coming to my, into my head at the moment, but, you know, keeping in mind that the comics reading audience, especially then, was largely male. So, you know, if someone was going to identify with the husband or the wife in that story, sad to say, but I mean, there, there might have been some, you know, there might have been some readers who were in, you know, more akin to the husband. And maybe, maybe that might have made them change something or think about changing something. Um, right. You know,
1: right. Cause they give him agency too to take care of the, you know, what is clearly an anger management issue and some insecurity that's deep seated. And we do sort of catch up with him a little bit afterwards. I think there's a scene mm-hmm. in, in an issue or two later where he's just sort of walking down the hall to his apartment and Clark, you know, asks him how he's doing and he's, he's just not having it. Like he's, he's like, I'm fine, but I really don't want to hear it from you. you know yeah um which i thought was realistic like he's not going to be suddenly like a changed man that's not how this goes down it's you know he realizes that he's pushed his wife away she's not going to be so so ready to come back to him so soon he really has to get his life in order and that's an uncomfortable place to be and and he's going to sit in that discomfort for a little while and you know what that's okay
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that little follow-up scene. Uh, you know, again, they don't give you much, but he, like, and he mentions that he's in counseling, and he's like, but it's none of your right. business. And, you know, so, yeah, you see this guy isn't suddenly an angel, but at least he's trying. Um, the w- What I especially appreciated about this story, and, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be totally honest. When I saw the covers for these two as I was scrolling through the app, I was a little concerned that it was going to come off as, like, an after-school special. like. Yeah tonight on a very special blossom that's kind of where that's kind of what i thought it was going to be you know and it it didn't read that way to me it felt real and it felt organic and it felt ahead of its time to be telling that story in a superman comic and to be telling it with i i think a fair amount of nuance i mean yeah i agree with you it's like you know the like the signs that you know clark is initially you know not totally picking up on and all that like it's you know, it, it is a bit cliche, but sad. I mean, sadly cliche for a, a reason. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe the initial setup to the story might have been a little, you know, maybe a little more refined if it were told to, but I, I really think it holds up, you know, it holds up and it doesn't come off as preachy uh, or after school, especially. And I really, I, I really have to, you know, give them kudos for that. So that was Louis Simonson and Dan Jurgens on Man of Steel and Superman. Uh, yeah. A real, real strong two-parter that stood out.
1: Yes, and, and here's where the the weekly issues really work is that, you know, yes, it's a two-parter with the label crisis at hand on the issues, but the reality is the the buildup to it was seeded several issues before in other titles, right? They didn't just pop in Tell this story about spousal abuse and then pop out without any follow up, which in a sitcom they might have done, right? You get you you get your one half hour. They're going to do their thing, and the next week it's like none of it ever happened because we got to get back to the funny. Uh, this it felt again, it, you know, that flavor of Metropolis. Like, of course, Clark and Lois have neighbors. Of course, they're going to have neighbors, and they're people that you see. And when you see them, they're having, they have their own lives. Yes, our job is to follow Clark and Lois because it's the Superman title. But, you know, these people have their own lives and their own problems. And so it when it's in there and then it explodes into the conflict, right, it becomes the A story for a little while. And then it fades out and becomes a B and C story again, right? So it's not forgotten about. Um, that's, that is the benefit of having the four part month. you know? Yeah. The way they're
0: able to weave everything in and out and again, achieve that ebb and flow, I think it w- was very, very strong and very well executed. And, you know, I, again, we, I, we keep talking about the supporting cast. It's, you know, it's, it's quite the canvas. It's quite the cast of characters. I mean, uh, of course, yes, Clark and Lois, Jimmy Perry, you know, our, our core group, but also Alice and of course Lex and Lex's, you know, various uh, doctors and associates, uh, you know, yeah. Supergirl, Bibbo, uh, Maggie Sawyer, Dan Turpin, uh, Inspector Henderson. You know, again, Cat Grant, Jose Delgado. I mean, the list goes on. And I I think w- what I just so appreciate, again, when, you, when you're when you in an issue or storyline where maybe the plot isn't grabbing you, you, you know, you're still invested in the character. So there's that value. But I think at a more fundamental level, for, for me especially, is that you know, I don't like when Superman is depicted as too uh, aloof or removed or or godlike. And I think populating his world with all these people he's interacting with and who have their own lives and stories that you know he's weaving in and out of, I, I think it just really creates this overall sense of he's a person living a life in a city. And I think that's the that's like the ultimate value of of this cast.
1: No, I, I I absolutely agree. And, and it goes back to that, that line from that Christmas episode that, that, you know, I'm super man, you know, and if we focus on the man part of it, yeah, he's still super. It doesn't take anything away from that. But, you know, if the stakes aren't personal, we stop caring about whether or not he succeeds. It, it just that's it's just good storytelling. So, you know, when it when it gets to to be its most ridiculous, you know, you'll notice like. The theme throughout our three episodes here has been when when it goes to the realm of the sort of ridiculous where it's it hinges so much on just plot, some plot device, then you and I tend to check out a little bit. And when it hinges on something in a relationship, when it hinges on that that interpersonal connection, you and I are dialed in a hundred percent. Yes. I don't think that's a coincidence.
0: No. No, no, I'm, t- yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Um, and, you know, kind of continuing along this thread of, of the personal, but also just showing the humanity of of Superman. Again, that two-parter and the, and the Metropolis mailbag, those those really uh, accomplish a lot. Um, but th- there's the issue where he confronts, you know, the Matrix Supergirl, who has now embarked on a relationship with Lex Luthor II. We got to talk about Lex. Um, and, yeah. you know, Clark doesn't know, you know, what's going on. He doesn't know if she's revealed his secret. You know, there's that worry. And, you know, as is often the case when, you know, superheroes initially, you know, meet, you know, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding and she, you know, uses one of her blasts against him. Um, But Superman, like Clark, loses his temper. And, you know, he acknowledges that and ultimately regrets it. But I, I like that for that brief moment they allowed him that, like, he, you know, and it's like, yeah, you probably would be pissed off, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, because she blasts him a couple of times, and eventually he's like, enough, <laughs> uh, but I, I thought, I, I appreciated that they allowed him that, you know, that he he is a man, and, you know, uh, again, I can't wait to talk about the Sons of Liberty story, because that one I really, really like, um, you know, and we can give the setup in a, in a minute, but, uh, you know, Superman makes a mistake in that episode you know he doesn't scan Pete Ross's briefcase because he's like well I know Pete and turns out there was a gun in there and then after the fact he's like like you know and he's trying to piece together what happened so you know I like these I like these stories where again there there are instances where you know it's not a matter of using his his powers it's it's really you know again that internal struggle or trying to figure something out and and we get
1: a good bunch of that in these issues. You know? We do. And that and that fight with the the Matrix Supergirl, to me, while it's an interesting physical confrontation, it it's all born out of character because you know, Superman is at that point rightfully, I think, terrified on two different levels. Number one, at that point, he still has no idea what to make of this Lex Luthor the second. Where did he come from? What's he up to? Right, the the name Lex Luthor carries with it so much, you know, so much weight in his life that to, for someone to come along who he, you know, even if he looks nothing like the other Lex Luthor, even if he acts nothing like the other Lex Luthor, just the fact that he is a Lex Luthor is really troubling and super. That is weighing on Superman, and and at the same time, you you take the Matrix Supergirl having a relationship with that Lex Luthor, and She knows Superman's secret identity. And so if she has revealed it to Lex Luthor and that becomes something that he can then exploit in some way, if it is his desire to do so, then that destroys so much of what he's built and so much of what he's trying to do. So he's terrified on two different levels and, and those levels intersect that I understand why he loses his temper that he's, there's so much at stake there.
0: Yeah. No. yeah totally so, so all right so speaking of lex luther the second yeah they saved luther's brain uh is oh, the, title. Was the best cliffhanger <laughs> yeah it, it was great uh now did you know going into this reading uh what the deal was with lex luther the second
1: uh i knew a little bit i knew a little bit just because i've read things after this so uh i I, I I suspected I th- or I thought I knew that Lex Luthor II was actually Lex Luthor the first in a in a cloned new body, but they really don't give anything away at first. At, at first, he re- you're supposed to believe this is a brand new person, and he's good. Like he is, he's philanthropic and he is kind and he. I mean, he's he's a nice guy. Yeah yeah,
0: I, I I actually, I love Lex Luther II. I love this whole storyline more than I thought I would. And again, Roger Stern and Jackson Geist did most, I think of the work. I, I, you know, they had numerous issues that were really devoted to to Lex II. Mm-hmm. So I knew the deal because again, by the time I was reading with, you know from from Death on, you know, yeah. the audience knew, um later you know of course the rest of the characters would figure it out and it would it would all blow up but um you know i mean i remember reading as a kid after superman died and lex is thinking about how he was the one who wanted to kill superman and we get a recap as far as how he ended up in this clone body so it was not a surprise but you know to your point as i was reading this i was like if you were reading this at the time or if you were reading it now cold and you had no idea I don't know that you would guess that. I mean, you would you would probably figure there's some twist, right? Because it's Lex. There's got to be something. But I don't know that you would think they saved Luther's brain in a jar, and <laughs> and cloned a body around it. And I, I would actually love you know f- to our audience, Douglas or anyone else. You know, if, for anyone who who did read this storyline cold back in the day or more recently, if you didn't know going into the story. Were you genuinely surprised, or or was this something that you were you were kind of predicting? I w- I would really be curious to know because I agree with you. I think the way it plays out, you figure there's something, and very early on, we we as much as he is portrayed as you know he's this helpful savior, he you know he arrives during the the blackout. He's the right. one who ultimately puts an end to the. Um, uh, the the union strike at the Daily Planet, he mm-hmm. pledges to, you know, b- buy up all these ads so that the revenue will increase and they'll be able to keep everybody on and meet the union's demands, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, he pre- really presents himself as an ally to Superman. He creates this Team Luther army, but they're highly cooperative and accommodating and deferential to Superman and to the SCU. You know, they're not like these, uh, you know, uh, they're not overstepping their bounds or anything like that, at least for now. Uh, So, so yeah, again, I would be curious, you know, kind of what people thought who were reading it at the time. But I just think, I, I don't know. I mean, it just takes Lex to this whole other level. Because when you think about the level of deception, I mean, it, look, it's one thing when he puts forth this... This this you know um, you know facade of of you know this this you know philanthropic businessman who's here to help Metropolis but you know he's got all these shady business dealings but to pose as your own son it's like <laughs> and you know to be meeting quote unquote meeting everyone for the first time but of course he knows their, you know every it just I don't know I really felt like it took Lex to another level
1: yeah to a completely sociopathic level yeah because because he's he has to now fake so many human emotions during so many human interactions with so many people that it, it seems like an it would be an impossible task i mean he is he is a genius you know whether he's evil or not he's a genius so i get it but there's a level of sociopathy here that is just astounding absolutely astounding um i also like when they when they give us you know that backstory, the the you know where he came from, that it actually is sort of a parallel to to Clark's own, right? So Clark, you know, is sort of the product of of Jor El and Lara, his Kryptonian parents, and the Kents. And Lex Luther the second is sort of a uh, seems to be a combination of of his father, Lex Luthor the first, and this Australian couple who <laughs> you know adopted him and took him in and you know sort of raised him. Uh, you know, on their own. So there is this sort of, you know, you know, the, the parents who abandoned, abandoned, not that, you know, the, the Kryptonians abandoned him. But, you know, the, the parents who abandoned you and then the parents who adopted you and raised you. There's there's that that parallel, which is kind of which is kind of neat. I like that. Um, uh, yeah, no, I really I really liked this character. And I and I fortunately I had forgotten a lot of what comes later. Um, I just haven't read it in a really, really long time. The death and the and the and the reign of the Superman. I just haven't read it in a long time. Gotcha. So I remember the broad strokes, and those generally don't involve Lex Luthor the second. So I I am looking forward to rereading that at some point, and or at least listening to your coverage on it. And, you know, <laughs> filling in those gaps for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, so as far as further developments with Lex the second, that really happens after the reign. It's really in '94 with the. Um, the battle for metropolis and the fall of metropolis where all of this comes to a head i mean not not to get too ahead of, of myself <laughs> but basically there's this the disease that's affecting clones including him and and this is where it kind of like it all starts to come to to a head but You know, it's funny, as I was reading this story, I couldn't help but think of Friends, and I know I've referenced the television show Friends in other episodes, but, uh, you know, there's one of the episodes where, you know, Joey's a soap opera actor, and the soap that he's on has this plot line where his character gets a brain transplant, and as he's telling the group of Friends, you know, this plot line, Ross, the man of science, is just so aghast at the idea of a brain, and I I just, all I could think of as I was reading these issues was Ross being like... And now your brain transplant like <laughs> so ridiculous, that's what I thought of. So you know, look, the setup for it is is a bit goofy, but um, I don't know, in terms of this world that we've established and and CADmus and all the scientific experiments and cloning, it didn't feel it didn't feel so outrageous. you know, it, it kind of felt relatively plausible within the world that 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 we're dealing with here, you know.
1: Yeah, as long as the internal logic holds, that's okay. I mean, we've already established that Superman can exist in in a, in a few different sort of milieus, right? He, he can do horror and the supernatural. He can do the, you know, all the way to the sci-fi end of it. And he can do sort of grounded human stories. That's, that's nothing new. Um, I actually really liked this whole thing. I was on board for the whole thing. Like, they played it with that sense of impending horror not supernatural horror just like right. horror horror um you know where you're you're almost getting to it you're almost getting to it and then you like grab the guy by the collar and go they saved luther's brain you know and that worked for me it really did I, i'm not gonna lie i was on board the whole time yeah
0: no it was it was cool i i you know i, I think One of the other reasons why I like this so much is that it, like I said, it takes Lex to another level in it, but it just, it, it really, it really just elevates the, the, the cunning and the manipulation and the ways in which he's challenging Superman. Because I think... You know, as much as the evil businessman Lex, as opposed to the mad scientist Lex, was relatively new. Like, it's funny, we, you know, we didn't spend a ton of time with that initial post-crisis evil businessman Lex. It was really only a few years before he, you know, quote unquote dies and then comes back as his son. But, um, you know, so they could have let that play out even more, but this just instantly freshened it up and... You know, again, just the level of subterfuge just just speaks to what Lex is capable of, and and I also like that um, you know again he comes back in this in this younger, taller, more muscular body with this you know lush mane of of red hair, <laughs> and I was thinking about this. I mean, I feel like this really is a major turning point in terms of depictions of Lex as a viable romantic option for you know in this case it's supergirl but you know for for any number of characters you know very shortly thereafter we're gonna get lois and clark the new adventures of superman on television and and john Shay's lex Luthor in that show you know he's debonair i mean he he is presented as a viable romantic possibility for lois in that first season and they they go so far as to get engaged in that in that first season of the show and you know it's been a while since i watched it I will be rewatching it next year on my Patreon, and it's going to be a lot of fun. My wife and I are going to talk about the entire series. It's going to be great. I know. I,
1: know. I can't wait. So
0: I don't know. I might feel differently when I rewatch it, but you know, the, my memory of it was that it wasn't so crazy that Lois would be interested in him. And you know, when we get to you know Michael Rosenbaum on on Smallville you know, John Shea, they let him keep his hair on, you know, <laughs> on Smallville, they went, they went in a different direction. And that's not to say that, you know, you can't be bald and sexy. I don't want to, I don't want to put that out there. Um, but, you know, that, again, gave us the more traditional baldness of Lex, at least. But still, like, he was, he was young and fit and vital. And so then when he makes a play for Lana Lang, it does, you know, it, it feels like it's a possibility. So it's just interesting to see that shift. And I really feel like it starts with, Lex the second
1: yeah and I would even throw into the ring with the the actors you mentioned the the Tim verse animated version voiced by Clancy Brown who also is I mean he's he's really fit you know it's it's bald Lex in the tailored suit but he's really fit and that voice you know he is a charmer when he wants to be you know he really really is and so you really understand Mm. why he's able to manipulate people especially women, the way that he, that he is able to, um, yeah, I, <laughs> um, I don't even know where I was going to go with that, but I, I just wanted to throw that one in there.
0: No, that's a good point. I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Cause yeah, I think that really does support this notion that we really have a pivot point here with, with the character of Lex. Um, you know, he's not this, you know, uh, you know, like, the old, older pudgy guy who's not, you know, really presented in 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 that uh, romantic light. And and again, very quickly, they throw him into this romantic entanglement with the Matrix Supergirl. Yep. And again, you know, the level of manipulation. I mean, she's immediately drawn to him because he looks just like the Lex from the Pocket Universe who created her. And he, of course, preys on that and also takes advantage of her shape-shifting abilities. I mean, it's real twisted. Um, but uh, again, I mean, I think it's just... Uh, It's just a new dynamic to play it's it's a it's a new way to approach the character of lex and his interaction with these characters i think that's what resonates with me the most
1: yeah i know what i was going to say now it it also shows the the level of forethought yeah that plan is it, it, it carries him all the way back to i think when when his only his hand had been poisoned by by the kryptonite ring and he had lost the hand and then shortly thereafter, I guess, receives the diagnosis that, that no, it's killing his entire body. And from that moment on, he starts crea- crafting this, this really complicated plan to make sure, because he's just so vain. He'll never let himself actually die. He can't stand the thought of a Lex luthor Earth, you know? So he, he's got to create this plan that's so far in advance, right? So far in advance that it, it actually continues upon his return as this new person. And he's still scheming. And and this I think is the really the first time where we start to get a sense of Lex as being on par in intelligence with like a Bruce Wayne Mm -hmm. where he's so, he's thinking so far ahead of everybody else that, you know, nobody can touch him. And that was always a really interesting dynamic for me with the Superman Lex thing. It's not that like, Clark is very, very smart. He's not Bruce Wayne smart, and he's not Lex Luthor smart. But he's really powerful physically in ways that Lex Luthor just isn't, at least not in a, you know, green and purple battle suit. So you've got this classic sort of brains versus brawn conflict that to me has always just been really satisfying. And I think maybe we're seeing the beginnings of that here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, well well said. Um... Yeah, I, you know, it, I don't know, it was an inspired choice, I think, to, to you know, I don't, it's funny, because I don't know, I don't know that I really have a great sense of how the fandom views this generally. I, I, I don't have much, and, and for people out there, you know, feel free to reach out, but, um, and, and again, you know, I know how it resolves, so, you know, maybe that's part of why, you know, I'm, I mean, again, I don't know, at the time, maybe it's it was too tough a pill to swallow, I mean, I, I really don't know, but... Uh, again, I definitely think it it, it works. It really freshened things up. And uh, yeah, to your point, I mean, it really just does show the level of of forethought and planning to a degree that, you know, as much as Lex was always depicted as being highly capable. I mean, I don't know that we would have attributed, you know, something to quite to this extent, you know, to him. Um, You know, right down to uh, the, you know, what the sleep tapes on on, uh, speaking with an Australian accent. (laughs) Right. You know, which that's the one thing I don't know that that's acknowledged later, because I don't have any recollection of of reading from the death forward and them referencing an Australian accent, unless I I, I mean I it's very possible I'm just forgetting or. You know, maybe it just went over my head at the time, but uh, you know, that was one of the things when I was reading these stories for the first time, I'm like, oh, like he's so like that was never in my head when I was reading Lex the Second stories later on in the nineties.
1: Yeah. So now that you say that this all comes to a head in the, the, the fall of Metropolis and all that, that's another fairly sizable gap in my Superman reading. So that might explain why I just don't remember how any of this resolves at all. So, gotcha. I'll be excited to to hear down the line when you when you cover that.
0: Nice. Let's take one more quick commercial break, and then uh, we'll, we'll finally get into Panic in the Sky. Uh, so we'll be right back. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role playing in a dungeon, the Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic: The Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at FilmFreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen on Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. And we're back. You know, I forgot to say this earlier, but I wanted to mention, you know, when we were talking about Tom Grummet and his, mm. you know, his youthful energetic style. Well, it's no surprise he went on to draw the Superboy series. You know, I meant to say that of before, course. but it's like, yeah, of course he was a perfect choice uh, for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I know you're going to get to it in a couple episodes anyway, but I think all of the artists who ended up handling the four different iterations of Superman and Superman upon his return were perfectly suited to that version of the character. So, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to hear you cover that because I haven't, I haven't thought about those in a really long time.
0: Yeah. Um uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to these to these final couple of episodes that we have coming up yeah. uh, as part of this event. So, you know, we've talked a lot already uh, in this episode about what was going on in, in these books and we've hit on a lot of the supporting cast and subplots and things like that. And and I think probably our favorite stories we you know, we've we've uh, addressed um, some of the other ones though that I I do definitely want to talk about. Of course, Panic in the Sky Uh, The the blaze Satanus war just a couple of things about that and the sons of liberty storyline which uh, that was a real uh, unexpected delight I I didn't know about that story really at all going in but basically Pete Ross um, who initially was working for a senator in DC and then ultimately takes the place of the senator when that senator is assassinated. Um, gets caught up in this homegrown right-wing uh, terrorist group, the Sons of Liberty, um, who try to force Pete uh, to uh, to do their bidding. Um, you know, initially they simply make the request that he vote a certain way and he uh, he does not follow their, uh, their instructions. And then they take it up a notch by kidnapping Lana and forcing Pete to uh, bring a gun into this closed Senate hearing where they're going to be... Um, uh, taking testimony from uh, one of the Sons of Liberty uh, ringleaders, um, and, and to have Pete uh, kill this person before he can incriminate the rest of the group, and it, you know, puts Pete in such a tough spot, and this is right as Lana and Pete's uh, relationship has blossomed in, in D.C., yeah. um, which, again, as far as the subplots, that was something that we had spent some time with, and and again, you know, again, that's a perfect example to exactly what you were saying earlier, where, For a bunch of issues, the Pete Lana stuff is just kind of like simmering in the background. There's one issue, I think, of Man of Steel where I swear it's only the bottom third of one page where we see Lana like interviewing for a job and that's it in the entire issue. So it's just kind of simmering there. But then we get to this, uh, you know, three or four part Sons of Liberty storyline where it all really comes to a head. What what did you think about that arc?
1: It's funny. So a couple of years ago, maybe a year or two ago, I, I can't even remember when at this point. The CW Supergirl show Mm -hmm. did a they called it the Children of Liberty, but it was it was the same thing. And I, I thought at that point, as I watched it, that this was a sort of reaction from the makers, you know, the writers of the show to sort of the current political climate. I had no idea that the origins of that story were right here, complete with an Agent Liberty character who, by the way, was played on Supergirl by Sam Witwer who had played Davis Bloom slash Doomsday on Smallville. That's right. It was a nice little bit of stunt casting there, which was very, very cool. Um, Yeah, no, no, I I really enjoyed when they did it on Supergirl. I thought it was super relevant. Um, And to to see it unfold here, I I, I, I couldn't help but think about not only how good the story is, for the reasons that you said. I mean, it's such a personal story with so much uh, character stakes. Uh, for, for, for Pete and for Lana and then for, of course, you know, Clark and, you know, by association. But thinking about, you know, some of the voices among comics and pop culture fandom who argue that our pop culture shouldn't be political. Um, that they're not looking for politics in this. Uh, You know, they want it to be pure uh, escapist fantasy and nothing more. Um, And a lot of the criticisms today are are leveled at the idea that, well, comics never were political, and you're just now making them so. And I want to go, hey, this is 30 years, 25 years ago? And they were, I mean, there's a line in this that somebody utters. They say, sons of liberty indeed just a high sounding name for a right wing death squad. I mean, it doesn't get more political than that. And, and there's no mistaking what the leanings of this story are politically. So like, it's been there for a while. And I was, I was shocked at just how front and center, how brazen the creators were with, I mean, I applaud it, but I was, I was really surprised. Yeah,
0: you know, as, as was I, you know, it's it's unfortunate that, you know, there are things addressed in these issues. Again, the domestic violence, this homegrown terrorism, you know, things that, again, we're talking 30 years ago in these books, but they're still issues today. Um, labor uh, you know, disputes, right. Yeah. Labor disputes, uh, again, discriminatory hiring practices, you know, uh, you know, that, right. that comes right. up where there are, are, um, you know, protesters outside the daily planet. Um, and this is also where we meet Ron Troop. Uh, he had, he came up in, right. in the, um, I think in our previous batch of, of issues, but he gets a lot more play here and he eventually takes a job at the daily planet. So, you know, there are all of these things that, you know, so I think in a lot of ways, the books were ahead of their time, um, but then again, there is also that element of sadness that it's like things that, you know, were relevant then, like sadly, still are. Um, but yeah, I mean, the books, you know, the books went there. This was actually something that I was messaging with uh, with Douglas about, going back to uh, uh, you know <laughs> one of our listeners, because again, he's he's really you know been sharing a lot about his love of this era and you know the things that have resonated with him, and you know, and this has come up in in a bunch of our episodes already. But you know, Maggie Sawyer. You know, being a you know an early queer character in comics, though they don't even utter the word "gay" in those early issues, but it's you know the intent is there. You know, um, you know, to everything that we're talking about in in these issues here, it's like yeah, they they really went there in a way that I don't think I was expecting going into this reading project either.
1: No, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I I also was a huge fan of the conversation that they had about hiring practices at the Daily Planet and I couldn't help but think of course that that there was a meta quality to that because (laughs) when you look at the when you look at the stable of 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 personalities in the Daily Planet not just the big ones you know Perry, Lois, Jimmy, Clark but really across the board even just some of the ancillary characters who pop in and out you know they're all white and they had been white for decades and decades and decades and so I, I, w- I have to wonder if the, if the comment in the story is also a sort of comment to past creators for not introducing characters of color or queer characters, you know, a little bit sooner than they had. But this was definitely a start and, and Ron Troop sits at the at the center of that. And of course, we know he, beco- he he goes on to become a mainstay of the Daily Planet supporting cast, as he should.
0: He's a delight. <laughs> when you talked about the meta aspect, I thought you were going to go a step further and talk about the, you know, who was working at DC comics, you know, which, cause you know, um, right. you know, I did, right. this, I, did this of, I did this run of, I did this run of, of book club episodes on a separate podcast earlier this year. And then the last one we did was on zero hour. And, you know, for Zero Hour, there's this, it, it's actually, it's, it's pretty amusing, uh, this promotional video that DC had made that went out to retailers at the time. It's very 90s and, and uh, lo-fi, but it's it's kind of cool because, you know, you didn't really get to see and hear from the editors and and writers, you know, to the extent that you do now. But I remember just watching it and it's just, you know, middle-aged white guy after middle-aged white guy. Uh, so So, you know, there's that. But but yes, within the pages of the comics, you know, I I think there's that commentary too, and I mean, literally, explicitly, there's that there's that scene where I think it's Alice, right, who's with um, Perry in the Daily Planet bullpen, and he's like, you know, how can how can these protesters be saying these things? Like, you know, we we do hire minorities, and she, and she's like, look, 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 who's sitting right. out here? <laughs> you know, it, it was right. um, you know, definitely, you know, definitely made a, a statement, and. Again, going back to what you were saying before about, you know, comics always being political, it's like, yes, there was definitely the period in the Silver Age where they really had to move away from that after the Senate hearings and the Wortham book and all that stuff. But look, just like we were talking about, go back to Action Comics number one, go back to the Golden Age Superman, the Social Crusader taking on wife beaters, taking on, um, you know, the, the you know, the the, the the projects and urban development and all like, it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's there. So, and look, if that's not what you want out of your comics, that's, I'm not saying it has to be, but, uh, but I agree with you. This, this notion of like, oh, it's, it's just being inserted now. It's like, no, it's been there. Maybe it's been done more elegantly before, you know, (laughs) maybe there's more of a question about how it's being done. And that's a separate argument and conversation. But again, I I appreciated the way I appreciated that they went there with these stories and the way that they did it.
1: I agree. Look, if you're going to take a character like Superman, who's. You know, part of the the introduction to the character is that he stands for truth, justice, and the American way. And if you're going to put that in there, you have to be prepared as a creator, to think, to comment on what the American way is. Like, that's a really nebulous term, if you really think about it. Because I think people in different parts of the country consider the American way to be something different than someone else would. Um and and at a certain point, it's like, well, how do you how do you create a, a shared understanding of what the American way is? And I think the only way to do that is not to make it something that actually exists, but to make it an aspirational thing, right? What is that American way to which we all aspire that we haven't necessarily achieved yet? Right? Because Superman is an aspirational character, right? I mean, he's he's inspirational, yes, as most superheroes are, but he more so than most other superheroes is also aspirational right he is he is the best version of all of us he's who we should aspire to be and so if he's going to stand for the american way he stands for an america that is the best version of america that maybe we haven't necessarily reached yet and so the creators are putting their stamp on what would that america look like well it certainly wouldn't have wife beaters in it and it would certainly have you know, a, a major metropolitan newspaper with a diverse staff on it, right? Um, you know, these that makes sense, and it certainly wouldn't have, you know, these, you know, the, the Sons of Liberty, you know, cult running around, you know, foisting their their fascist views on on people violently, violently. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's I think it's perfectly in keeping with this character. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this is the most important character to deliver those messages.
0: I, I listen, I couldn't agree more. Uh, You know, with with the Sons of Liberty, we don't, unless I'm forgetting, it's like, I don't know that we get so much about what specifically their agenda is. Uh, I I mean, you know, I guess where we initially meet them and where the, the major who is uh, you know uh, being interrogated who they ultimately assassinate in in this arc you know we meet him trying to assassinate the president of karak in in an earlier story right. so you know there's definitely that you know that aspect of international maneuvering but you know as far as what they specifically want you know uh, you know in America for America, yeah, I don't know. They don't totally spell that out. Maybe that was maybe that's where kind of like the line was as far as how mm-hmm. <laughs> how how much they were going to go into it. But it definitely was interesting. I I too thought of the Supergirl TV show. Um I I actually I enjoyed I enjoyed that season and that arc that was also the season that introduced their version of Lex Luthor. And I, um, yeah, again, I'm a big fan of Sam of Sam Witwer from his, his portrayal of, uh, of Doomsday on Smallville. So it was cool to see him in that. And, you know, they really took the approach of, um, you know, it, it was really, their story was an allegory for the anti-immigration, um, right. you know, sentiment and through the lens of, you know, um, people not wanting aliens from outer, you know, from outer space on Earth.
1: Actual aliens. Actual versus aliens. Illegal aliens. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: so that was, you know, that was what the show did. But again, I really, again, I was not familiar really at all with Agent Liberty from the comics or or this this backstory. So it was cool to see. And yeah, I mean, it really had this, you know, very personal component with Pete and Lana. And man, I go back and forth with Pete and Lana because, you know, in these issues, we get to see the beginning of their relationship, and, you know, in this post-crisis version of the story, you know, Lana has always loved Clark, but Clark hasn't, you know, at one point, like, later in in one of the issues we read, you know, uh, Clark describes her to Lois as an ex-girlfriend, but it's like, really the way it's always been painted is that, you know, she's pining for him and he doesn't really see her that way. And in one of these issues, he even calls her kiddo. I mean, if there's any way it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know, totally give the impression that's not what you want. There you go. So, which I've never really liked. And I recognize that's probably a function of being such a fan of Smallville, the TV show where they had this intense, Uh, you know, relationship, and, you know, it begins with him pining for her, so, you know, that was kind of my big introduction to to Lana at that point in the story, I guess, so I always have that in my head, so I don't, I don't necessarily love this post-crisis version, where it's really more one way, Um, but, you know, in these, in these issues, she comes to see Pete in a different way, and when it first happens, you know, they're, they're in D.C. together, and they're in separate apartments in the same building and then her apartment floods and then she you know, goes to stay with him. And you know, she has this moment where she, and I don't know, maybe different people might interpret it differently, but it just kind of played to me as like, I really want to be with Clark, but I can't have Clark and Pete's here and he's a good guy, you know, and he'll do <laughs> sort of thing. And, you know, then they embark on this relationship and they get engaged. But I felt like the Sons of Liberty story you know really showed it showed us how much Pete loves Lana that he would be willing to even entertain the notion of assassinating someone you know to uh <laughs> you know to protect her but it it showed to Lana how much Pete loves her and I think it showed her the hero that Pete can be and and, and so i I really appreciated it in that respect now at the same time I know from reading the comics later on I mean they're never really. Happy, she ne- Alana. To the best of my recollection, is never really depicted as satisfied with her lot with Pete in future stories. So I think it's a short-lived thing. But I think at least for that moment, um you know, it it allowed her to see Pete maybe the way
1: Pete w- always wanted her to see him. Yeah, to me, it read sort of two ways, and they compete. One is it it almost paints Pete as as kind of pathetic. In that, you know, we watch Lana go through the process of settling for him. Yeah. You know, she's she's really infatuated with Clark, and he couldn't be more clear that he's not interested in that way. And then, of course, once his relationship with with Lois really builds steam with the proposal and all this, it, it, it should be clear to everybody that it's just not going to happen. Um, and so again mentally we watch her go through the process of saying well at the point that I can't have Clark I guess I'll take Pete he's better than better than nothing. On the other hand I think there's something very real about recognizing your own limits and saying I want this thing but I can't have this thing right and it would be really childish of me in some ways to keep going after a thing or, or to sit here and put my life on hold, waiting for the remote possibility that this thing becomes available. So I'm going to just try to live the best version of my life possible. And you know what? Here's this guy right in front of me who cares about me, who respects me, who's willing to give me the time and the attention and the affection that Clark frankly isn't. And you know what? I'm going to give that guy a shot because he deserves that shot and you know what maybe he'll make me happy regardless of the fact that ultimately he won't for that moment i actually really applaud that choice
0: yeah no fair enough fair enough and you know and there's that moment where she puts the photo of clark aside you know so we get a visual representation of her you know kind of you know putting that behind her um. Again, I think, yeah, again, the settling, I think, kind of comes off more than the moving on and, you know, Fair. sort of making this uh, this, uh, you know, adult choice. But but yeah, fair enough. And then on the flip side, though, it's (laughs) as much as Clark obviously is in love with Lois and they're going to get married and, and, and all of that. But, you know, when he gets the wedding invitation for Pete and Lana, like he feels some sort of way about it, which, you know, on the one hand, you could argue, well, that doesn't really seem to track, blah, blah, blah. But I actually I feel like that's kind of pretty human. It's like even though he didn't see her that way. You know, again, he still feels some sort of way that she ends up with his best friend. So I, that I, I actually appreciated.
1: You, it's like you can't help but let it stroke your ego just a little bit to know that there's someone out there pining for you. And then when they stop, you know, that the stroking stops. And you're like, oh, right, maybe I maybe I liked that feeling more than I thought I would. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: but yeah, so the Sons of Liberty story. So again, the sons force Pete to uh, to bring a, a gun into the Senate hearing to assassinate The witness, he does bring the gun inside to protect Lana, but in the end is unable to go through with shooting someone. Um, But the actual agent Liberty, um, who's posing as a Secret Service agent, carries out the deed, and and Pete is arrested. And of course, you know Superman gets the bottom of everything and clears Pete's name. But yeah, I mean, and it was cool. Again, Pete Ross post crisis doesn't get a ton of play, uh, you know, especially during this period. So. It, you know, it was, was kind of nice to to shine the spotlight on him. And like I was saying before, you know, dealing with, you know, Superman's failure to uh to to stop the gun from getting in. It made me laugh though when the reporters were were questioning Superman and they were like, But you were x-raying everyone. Like, what happened? And he's just like, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. As a lawyer yeah. here, I'm like, never admit I made a mistake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I advise my clients not to speak.
0: Yeah, it's like, buddy, what are you doing here? Uh yeah. yeah we we have to talk about Panic in the Sky because we've been going for yeah, almost 2 hit. hours and it's the title of this episode and we
1: haven't talked <laughs> about it yet but we've been build, we've been building towards it. Yes, funny. this is our, this our
0: big finale here. Uh yeah. what what yeah. would you think about Panic in the Sky? Did you like Panic in the Sky?
1: Oh, my my feelings are complicated. Um I felt like it served its purpose. In that it Drew to a close a bunch of different dangling plot threads from really the beginning of our coverage, um, in as elegant a way as I guess it could. It it, it brought those elements together. the The Brainiac saga, Draga. Um, I'm, trying, I'm trying to even remember what else is. In I mean, this. it brings the Matrix. So, it brings
0: Matrix. Back. The
1: Matrix, right? Right. It brings Matrix back so that she can become this new Supergirl. Um, it, it's certainly a a big bombastic f- crossover feeling book, even though it wasn't like a DC event, and they kept it contained to the Superman titles. You know, a lot of other heroes guest star in it, so you get this feeling of of a of a a DC sort of crisis event, mini crisis event. Um, it was entertaining enough, I suppose. I wasn't blown away by it. I, I I wish I had been. And I don't know whether that's because this particular roster of the Justice League isn't really my favorite roster. um, Or whether it's just the nature of the story feeling almost utilitarian rather than... Or sort of more than anything else, like we have to tie up these loose ends before we get to the sort of build up towards the death of Superman when it will be too late. So let's do it all now. Um, but, yeah, I guess I guess it was fine. What would you think?
0: Yeah, I think I think we're we're pretty similarly aligned as we have been on a lot of these stories. I didn't feel like there was a, a ton of meat on the bone for this one. You know, it was it was Fun, and it was action-packed, and you get to see this, you know, DC-wide team-up, like you said. And so I, I think depending on what you want out of the story, you know, your, your mileage will vary. Uh, the, the, I guess the, the couple of things that I really did enjoy, I'll focus on the positive first. One was that, um, you know, it, it positioned Superman in a leadership role. Amongst all of these heroes, and you know, at this point post crisis, you know he's not on the Justice League, and that will change shortly because he does he does join them uh, when Dan Jergens takes over the Justice League title shortly before death of Superman. It's not a very long period, but um, Jergens does have this run on Justice League, and Superman's a member. Um, but so I thought it was it was cool. I mean, as much as we've seen him team up with other DC characters, and of course John Byrne's Action Comics run was all team up stories, um, but this was this large assembly. Of, of DC characters with Superman leading the charge. And, you know, it I, again, it just put him in a little different position. And I liked that. It might have been late. I, it was late when I was reading. And maybe I it was just I wasn't tracking everything. But I swear, like, you know, there was that initial gathering of the heroes that he had assembled. And then I feel like every subsequent issue, there was like some character we hadn't seen yet who was also there. Yeah. But that might have just been I might have just been been missing them initially. I don't know. And then the other thing, and this was relatively small, but I really, I really appreciated Draga's redemption. The fact that, you know, he had this, you know, his, his whole thing was he wanted to, you know, he, he had brought shame upon himself. He hadn't defeated Superman on War World and Superman had saved him repeatedly. And, you know, Draga is going to fight him to the death, um, you know, to regain his honor. And I think it gets a little muddled because he also becomes very smitten with Supergirl. And so kind of the line between being inspired by the example of Superman and like wanting to bang Supergirl. I mean, I, you know, I don't know exactly like where, 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 where we can really draw that line, but the fact that he, he did have this turn, I, I did appreciate that, and, you know, he ultimately pays the the ultimate price, and the the cover of that issue is an homage to Crisis when yeah. Supergirl dies, and in this instance, it's Supergirl holding his lifeless body, so that was a nice little touch, uh, so, I, you know, I enjoyed that aspect of it, Um, otherwise, you know, I, I, I don't know that I really, you know, <laughs> I don't know that I have a A ton more to say about I mean, you know, again, for anyone not familiar with the story, it's, you know, Brainiac. And of course, this is the post-crisis Milton Fine Brainiac uh, launching an assault on Earth. Um, He has Draga. He has Supergirl initially, you know, under, um, you know, his his thrall. Uh, He has Maxima. Uh, I guess that was the other bit that Mm -hmm. was interesting because, you know, eventually, of course, Maxima will become a a hero uh, to an extent in her own right. And she joins the Justice League, if I'm not mistaken. She does? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, no, of course. What am I saying? Of course she does. Um, and so, you know, we kind of we see that turn here. So, there again, there were some interesting, you know, character beats. Um, but overall, yeah, it's a big DC team up as they fight Brainiac and his invasion forces. Uh, you know, so it, 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 is, it is what it is.
1: Yeah, I just felt like by the time we got to pl- uh, Panic in the Sky, I just I was I was done with all of those threads. I just I didn't I wasn't I wasn't wondering about them. Hey, I want, you know. Where's, what's Draga up to or are they gonna bring Maxima back I just they feel like they felt like they had served their purpose at, at the time that they had appeared and I, I just I wasn't I wasn't one of the people who was clamoring for it to be tied up so it just felt like it kind of interrupted some of the stuff that I was actually interested in you know as far as my takeaways you know the prelude, I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I think I skimmed a lot of it. It was just all of this alien stuff with none of the characters we recognized. And I just, I I wasn't interested. Um, there's this really, uh, nice establishing shot of the metropolis fairgrounds that is literally just a recreation of the New York world's fair in Flushing Queens. And I was like, they're not even trying, they're not (laughs) even trying to make it its own thing. Um, I mean, Guy Gardner is the Green Lantern in this particular iteration of the Justice League. And get your explicit content warning ready because he is a dick. He is a colossal dick. He is misogynistic. He is rude at every turn. He is selfish. I have no idea why the ring picked him. He is the worst. He's just the worst. Now, that's it. I have read... Guy Gardner stories that I've enjoyed, but this is not one of them. I find him completely irredeemable. I have nothing nice to say about him at all, at all. Um, And as far as what you had said about, um, you know, the writer's intentions with the story, the trade paperback that that I read this story from, I don't know which way the camera is. Um, It's like reversed. Uh, The trade paperback I used at the beginning of each chapter, each issue there's like a testimonial from the writer of that issue where they talk a little bit about the sort of behind the scenes stuff. So they talk about originally wanting to do it as a DC event, but then ultimately deciding to keep it smaller as a Superman event, you know, talking about this sort of need to tie up all of the, you know, the loose ends to give Draga sort of an appropriate, you know, finale and all that, and they were really interesting. I, I always liked that extra stuff. And this is before they were putting any sort of extra features in trade paperbacks. I mean, those these trade paperbacks of the era were pretty sparse. Sometimes they didn't even include covers. Uh, but so I, I really actually appreciated the package that that this came in. Uh, as for the story itself, I just yeah, it was fine.
0: Well, that's, that's, that is cool about the trade paperback material. Uh, It's, it's funny because in the last episode, you know, you and I were not so hot on time and time again. And, you know, again, as going back to our, our audience, there were a number of people who reached out and they're like, I love time and time again. (laughs) Okay. And, 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 you know, and that's the thing. And like I say to them and I say it on the show and I say it all the time is that that's, that's great. I never begrudge anyone their enjoyment of one of these stories. I'm happy that someone did. I, you know, I, I never I would never say I wish you didn't like it. I always say, I wish I liked it the way, the way you did. So, you know, there might be people if you're a huge panic in the sky fan, uh, you know, I I'm sorry that Scott and I were, were kind of cool on it, but I will say, I, I mean, I don't know, are you familiar with the, you know, sort of the the connection to Superman that the title has generally? panic in the sky
1: uh it was an episode of the the george reeves yeah Uh, what
0: what many myself included consider to be the best episode uh from season Uh, two where superman tries to stop uh, an asteroid from from hitting earth and he loses his memory and uh you know we talked about this on the show at the beginning of the year so if anyone wants to like the full breakdown of this it's there but uh, there's this really powerful scene where george reeves as as Clark, he's, he's sort of dressed halfway between Clark and Superman and he's standing in front of the mirror and he's like trying to figure out what he needs to do. It's 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 a really standout episode. If someone hasn't watched Adventures of Superman and you're like, I'll only do one episode, I watch Panic in the Sky. So, you know, it, it has that pedigree. You know, when you see that it's like Panic in the Sky, like it, it means something within the world of Superman. Um, Yeah, I, again, I, th- I think overall it, it worked Yeah, I think it worked well enough. I don't, in the end, I think it made sense to keep it confined to the Superman books. I don't know that it really would have supported a line-wide story. I don't know. Um, I agree. Kind of on that note, we didn't read it, or at least I didn't read it, but there was the Armageddon event that happened during this period that we're reading um, that dealt with... um, uh, um, Hawk of Hawk and Dove becoming Monarch and the Linear Men.
1: Oh right, 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 right. I have to say that I, was in some of the annuals, right? It was in the
0: annuals, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the Linear Men got some play in a few issues of of uh, uh, Superman by Jurgens. I, I you're rolling your eyes, but you know I have a soft spot. <laughs> I have a I had there's a I have a soft spot for the Linear Men and for Cadmus uh, for the for the two oh. of them just because they did play decent sized, uh, parts in, in, in my introduction to Superman. So, uh, so I, 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 I never mind so much when, when I see them, but, uh, you know, I, I get it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're not my favorite, uh, parts of the Superman universe, but you know,
0: yeah. (laughs) We also got the origin of the atomic skull in one of the earliest issues that we read.
1: That is true. That is true. I've
0: never liked atomic skull ever.
1: <laughs> I, I can't say that he's a favorite of mine. The issue was fine. Um, it was, it, that was the one that was done in that sort of like a uh, movie style. Right.
0: Yeah. So like he's, so uh, the, the, the man who becomes atomic skull, he's at, he's, he's, I believe he has the metahuman gene and he's at star labs. And while he's there, um, I don't know. There's some explosion caused by the events of Armageddon, and it it turns him into this atomic skull. But he takes that name and persona from because uh, he's a movie projectionist, so it comes from an right. old movie. And so, yeah, they do do this issue where um, he's fighting Superman, and we kind of have like side by side um, the 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 old movie. And what's going on in the present and of course you know he's just reciting the lines from the movie so it, that was right. kind of clever the way that issue was structured you know i had never read the origin of atomic skull didn't really make me like the character any anymore. but it's like all right at least i got the backstory
1: yeah I, you know, it was fine i don't know if i have anything to say about it it was fine the
0: uh and again not to not to rush through these things but we we have just hit the two hour mark so i think we we can uh we can bring this to a close we've covered so much but one thing we haven't mentioned, Clark, somewhat easily, I'm, I might argue, <laughs> takes down intergang.
1: <laughs> it does happen rather, rather quickly and easily. Yes, <laughs> for for such a long drawn out plot thread.
0: You know, I look, I, I look at intergang, and I feel like it's the sort of thing where um, I, I just don't think the books were set up to spend the amount of time with the inner workings and the goals and the machinations of Intergang that I would like as a like I think that would be a really cool story. And I would have loved to see more of a lengthy investigation by Clark into Intergang. But again, I I just don't think that was the purview of of these books. And I appreciate the time that they did spend on Intergang. But yeah, so the what what kicks this off is that Lois challenges Clark. Basically says like look you use your powers to give yourself an unfair advantage as a reporter. Which, in fairness, it's true. It's like, I mean, he can see through walls, he can eavesdrop on conversations, he can type up his stories at super speed. Half the time, he's just reporting on himself. Right. <laughs> so there, right. you know, look, she has a point. And so he does it, you know, you know, without powers. But basically, he, um, he goes to court where, you know, I think one of the inner gang or a couple of the inner gang people are, are being arraigned or tried. And he, you know, overhears a conversation with a couple of people in the, in the, in the gallery and they talk to him and then he just, you know, he just kind of follows the breadcrumbs from one person to the next. And he gets a hold of a briefcase that has everything that he would need to take. And then that's it.
1: Yeah. What's kind of nice about it. There's a little bit of a poetry to that. And that like the heavy hand of Superman is, is not the appropriate approach to taking that down. Whereas the lighter touch of reporter Clark Kent seemed like it was, absolutely the right way to do it. You know, he was able to get into places that Superman could never have gotten into. And even though, you know, he would have had super hearing, let's say, to overhear a conversation, if you take that out of the mix, right, it, it, it takes a Clark Kent to be in the place to even overhear it. So I, I kind of appreciate it for that. You know, it, it reminded me sort of of like um, uh, to go to a go to- Everybody's favorite, but like Iron Man three, when you see Tony Stark stripped of his armor and all of his tech, and he just just through sheer ingenuity on his own has to infiltrate what he believes to be the Mandarin's uh, hideout and lair, like, and he does. He's just with, with the, the things he has for you know on him from Home Depot. He's able to get in there just him, and and I always like that sort of stripped down superhero approach to see that yeah he's the super, but he is again to repeat this like he's also the man and that's just as valid a and you say it all the time like that Clark part of him is much is just as valid if not more so a persona than the Superman part of him. yes yeah
0: no totally. Um, again, I think I just wanted more. I think I just wanted more of the intergang investigation and, and more of all of that. it was just kind of I feel like intergang was something more that they told us about more than uh, we really sure. got to see with with yeah. some exceptions um, mm-hmm. you know, but for the most part it kind of fell into that category but that but uh, that was a major development that Clark finally took down uh, intergang. Uh, and then the last thing that I want to bring up and certainly if there's anything else that you want to talk about that we have not I'm happy I'm happy I don't mind t- to keep going but uh, for for your sake and the audience's sake, I, I don't want to push it <laughs> even more than we already have but uh, the 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 blaze uh, Satanus or Satanist story um, you know, they're brother and sister demons. Uh, we do find out at the end of this arc that, uh, Colin Thornton, the the owner of news time is actually uh satanist in disguise. So, um, we do get that revelation, but you know, a lot of this arc, you know, takes place in this, uh, you know, other dimension basically that satanus transports the news time building to there's a there's a lot going on here although i will say i liked the sort of the connection point we had spent some time with sam foswell as the as the right, acting manager right. of the daily planet while perry white stepped away and he made a number of poor choices including firing jimmy and allowing the strike to uh, to get out of hand and you know he ultimately becomes the scapegoat there and loses his job with the daily planet and, um, you know, just really finds himself down a dark path to the point that uh, just like the abusive husband finds himself contemplating suicide. Um, I don't mean to be laughing as I'm saying that. It's a very dark subject. But um, again, I liked um, I, I like that. We kind of had that that through line. And again, I mean, Sam Foswell is among the supporting cast is definitely the, one of the most minor ones. But, you know, him, too. At least you have that that continuity there. So I thought that was cool. Um, but so, you know, most of that arc is this battle between the demons, you know, in this other dimension. And of course, Superman's powers aren't working right. And he's got Lois and Jimmy and a bunch of other civilians trapped and trying to fight off this horde of demons. It it, it got, it, for me, it kind of wore on me. That got repetitive. I felt like it was just like issue after issue of the same thing. The kicker, though, and this is really where they lost me in this story, was, um, you know, Satanus' whole thing is he he's like, we have to kill uh, Foswell because he's... The, basically the the, the the gateway that blaze has right. used to bring these demons into the world and uh and you know of course blaze is you know trying to you know un- unleash these these demons and they're kind of like fighting you know over over su- Superman and and Superman has to decide and he's like i won't you know I, I won't let these demons continue to come forth but i won't let you kill foswell like I won't do-. and I'm, I'm like oh what's What's he gonna come up with? Because it's like he's <laughs> Superman. It's like there's gotta be something, right? Like, and I just I kept waiting for. It. I was like, oh, this will be great. And then in the end, he's just like, okay, all right, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and in the end, Foswell lives. But I mean, Superman basically submits. Yeah. To, so I don't know. That was a little bit um, that missed the mark for me. I just kind of felt like that was building up to something that we didn't quite get. And and again, yes, that falls into the category of the the supernatural stories that are not my my preferred version of of a Superman tale. But um, it was it did. I will say when uh, you know Blaze conjures the image of Jerry White and uses it to lure in Alice and Perry. You know that was. Um, you know that that really packed a punch, and I felt for those characters. So there, again, you know, even in a story that's not my favorite, there are still those those aspects that I can kind of grab onto. Was there anything else about that arc that stood out to you?
1: No, I was going to say that that while the supernatural stuff we've said just doesn't, it's just not our bag. Um, th- the character stuff really works. I do like the setup. Again, the setup of that sort of you know deal with the devil where you have two equally horrible choices to make and it seems as though those are the only two choices right it's you can either um let foswell live and these demons are just going to keep pouring into this dimension and kill everybody here including lois and jimmy um or very simple solution you just kill foswell and the demons stop you save everybody else but you kill foswell right it's a it's a mod you know it's a trolley problem right you know, to get philosophical, um, and I like that. But you're right. I think there has to be an ingenious way of of figuring out how to stop this by choosing neither of those two things. And so, choosing one of them can't be an option for Superman. It just can't. It, other characters maybe, but not not for Superman. But we do get that beautiful, that beautifully tragic moment where they present Jerry White to to Perry and Alice um, and they believe I mean they believe that this is Jerry White and they can have him back yeah only to have him taken away again and be told that that wasn't real he's dead you're never getting him back and to, to to watch them go through that pain all over again is is frankly really brilliant character work and i appreciated it i really appreciated it it's it was hard to watch and that's the intention i think um so there is something really nice to come out of it i agree i think i think maybe two issues would have been fine for that and then move on to something else four issues seemed a little bit just a little bit too long yeah
0: yeah no i'm i'm, I'm with you um, is there anything else about, uh, our reading assignment we haven't talked about that, that you wanted to hit on?
1: Okay. I'm going to run down my checklist. Go for it. So there's, a, there's a villain they introduced called high tech, right? This mm-hmm. sort of, as the name would imply this tech themed villain. Ve- and I, and I, I put in my notes that this is another uh, illustration of, of sort of where a story goes wrong because it just doesn't have personal stakes. It was really just a physical battle between Superman, you know, Superman, the, the physical, powerhouse and this technology. And it just didn't, didn't really do much uh, for me. Um, I will say that uh, through all of the conflicts in this whole uh, very long reading, man, Superman's cape cannot stay intact. (laughs) Not even once his cape always ends up ripping, tearing, being shredded from his body. I, and I get it. you have to show somehow that this was difficult even if you're not going to bruise the body, but the cape just doesn't seem to make it out of a fight. Um, <laughs> I really liked I really liked that the last four issues that we read, one of each title at the very end gave us the the doomsday fist against that metal wall and it kept getting you know punching deeper and deeper into, that metal wall until finally it punches out of that wall, which we know of course will lead direct into uh I- you know into the death of Superman. It reminded me a lot actually of Walt Simonson's Thor, where for many issues leading up to the big Surter saga, you just had this doom as Surter was forging his giant sword. Uh it's a really powerful way, I think, to hint at something big coming without having to actually reveal it yet so I really like that um, I think these last few issues of Superman is where we see Dan Juergens really become Dan Juergens that art style cements itself as this I mean powerhouse in the industry that he will then use for Superman, Justice League. I mean he, his style becomes what we know it to be that, that he's really kept to this day and I loved seeing that evolution because he is just so damn good, and I just love it. Um, I did not think I was going to like the final issue of Adventures of Superman, where they bring back Nixus Pitalik yet again. I've stated in the past that I'm I'm not always a fan of those stories. I think that they get kind of silly, and it goes into the magical and the the absurd. Um, But I really liked this one. I really did. I thought it was a really fun story, and the Watchmen homage stuff, I thought was clever. It was a hoot. It really was a hoot, you know? Yeah. Like, you really had to kind of be in the know. And I've taught that book in my English classes enough to, to recognize it. I got a huge kick out of that. I really did. Um, as we spoke about before we started recording, um, I, was, I was so taken by how much of the stories from this run had made it into... The first season of superman and lois on the cw i mean we get the eradicator we get steel they mentioned dr dabney donovan <laughs> they said that and i'm telling you if we hadn't been reading this right now that name would have flown right by me it never would have made a dent they said dr dabney donovan and i was so tickled it's such a deep cut
0: sam foswell too they use in, in superman and lois
1: that's true. Foswell is mentioned there as well. Um, so those are all my notes. I have one final question for you. Sure. How does it feel to finally close this gap in your Superman fandom?
0: It feels good. It really does. I I, I feel satisfied and I'm... I, overall, I really enjoyed, uh, I mean, again, you and I read 150 issues approximately uh, across these three episodes over these past few months. And, um, you know, the Burn stuff that I read prior to our episodes, that was closing a gap as well. Um, It just wasn't one that was as pressing for me and no disrespect to burn, but this was the period that I was most looking forward to because I, I guess I, based on everything I had, I had heard and read and I knew that it fed directly into the period that, that means the most to me. So, Uh, You know, for for those reasons, you know, I was most excited for this part of of the of the reading. Um, You know, maybe there's a small part that's sad that now, you know, that you know, it's it's done, and now, you know, again, really, what I had considered the biggest gap in my fandom now I've closed. Uh, But yeah, more than anything, um, very satisfied. I really enjoyed the process. I loved talking about all of it um, with you, and. Yeah. I mean, it was just cool to finally get the context, the backstory um, for for all of these things that I would continue to see play out. And and it just further made me appreciate what these creative teams did because, I mean, there's stuff that continues to pay off and play out really throughout the rest of the, this triangle era, pre and and Kelly. I mean, as much as the triangle numbers continued for a while into their run. I, I think once Juergens left, that was really, you know, certainly an era of the within the triangle era that, you know, there was definitely a big chapter that was closed at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, to see how they set all of this up, I mean, yeah, it was really, I just enjoyed it. And um I still cannot tell you why i never went back and read this stuff earlier i don't have a reason i mean there's there's nothing i can really point to i, I mean I, the only thing i could say is I, maybe i just had i was getting enough of a superman fix reading those you know a book a week for all those years i, I don't know it's yeah. the only thing i can think of but you know things work out the way they're supposed to because i feel like it was this was a great 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 project to do for this podcast and i think i got a lot more out of my reading by virtue of you know reading it to place it into its larger context and to read it knowing that we were going to be dissecting it and discussing it if i had just kind of like been passively reading it a i don't know if i would have gotten through all of it i mean it's 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 a lot to read and it's easy to just kind of be like i'll get to it later i'll get to it later with this it was like we got to finish this because we're going to talk about (laughs) it (laughs) so the uh, deadline helps the deadline helps so yeah, this I mean I appreciate the question. I mean this as a, as for me as a Superman fan on my Superman fan journey, this was a big yeah, this was a big moment. Very cool. So, how about Very you cuz cool. this was a gap for you as well?
1: It was. Yeah, I mean like you, the really the, the my first introduction to Superman in comic in comic book form was the death of Superman which, you know, I picked up the trade paperback while I was on a family vacation at a Catskill hotel. They happened to have it in the hotel uh, gift shop on a spinner rack for like five bucks. And I, you know, I grabbed, I said, Boy, what the hell, what what else am I doing? And I grabbed it and I read it that night and at three o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting there crying in my bed audibly. I woke my brother up. I was crying in the bed because it moved me so much. And I also, I wanted to have that, that context. Um, so- I, I was excited about it. I had a couple of sporadic issues here and there, right? So to complicate my reading, you know, the way that titles going, you know, independently, I also had a stack of random single issues that I would insert whenever I could, because I always like to read the physical thing more than I like to read the app. So that was just all kinds of weird Um but I'd always been curious about how it all ties in because reading a random issue here, random, I had blackout part three. I didn't have any of the other blackout issues. I didn't know what the hell was going on in this thing. So to get to read it all at once and to see that, that cohesion of the line, you know, from a creator standpoint, you know, for, for fans who really appreciate the the people behind the stories, I I continue to be, not only appreciative but I continue to be in in utter awe of what was accomplished here whether we liked every story or not is irrelevant the sheer number of comics that were produced on a weekly freaking basis is astounding it's absolutely astounding and every creator and every editor involved in this should be applauded just for that alone um so i i have enjoyed this experience with you so much i i don't i honestly don't even have the words to express how fun this has been and how honored i am that you asked me to to be in these particular <laughs> three episodes but never ask me to read that many comics <laughs> at one time ever again
0: <laughs> if i just want the audience to know i gave scott multiple outs when we were initially planning this and i was like if it's too much it's okay
1: <laughs> it's true it's true no i i was i was absolutely happy to do it i was absolutely happy to do it no yes. this has been a blast
0: no it really has i i thank you so much and 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 again this we're not done i still have two more installments so uh next week uh, uh bernie will be back as i mentioned before and we're going to talk about the death of superman and funeral for a friend and then the week after that we're going to talk about the reign of the superman and the return of superman um, and that will conclude our eight-part event. So, you know, I'll be doing my reread of Death and Funeral very shortly, and, you know, obviously this will uh, be a big part of the conversation next week, but my prediction (laughs) is I really, you know, I think it's going to pack more of a punch I mean you know I think it's a testament to the death of Superman that you know you and I both read it cold in a vacuum and it still had a profound effect on us and that's saying that's saying something but I think it's really going to mean a lot more now having spent all of this time with this version of the character and all the other characters and that's kind of the the other thing and I'll unpack this more after I've done my reread and I get into those other episodes but I think that you know reading those stories as a kid it was more about i guess what i got out of it was learning about superman by the way the other characters remembered him and talked about him and there's value in that for sure and i think that and you know we'll I'll talk about this but i think that you know it played a huge role in shaping how i saw the character i mean again it it has to have an effect if your introduction to a character is that character's death and so how does that play out but i think what's going to be different this time is that now i'm so invested in the supporting cast so now it's not just going to be, well, what does their grief tell me about Superman? But it's like, what am I learning about them? And how is, what effect is this having on them? And I think that's going to be the main different way that I, that I take in these stories. And I, I, I can't wait to get into them and talk about them. So that's what's coming up. But I think that's, I think that's what, what I'm going to find.
1: Damn it, Anthony. You've made me now want to reread those issues along with you before I listen. So I think I might, my (laughs) Superman reading might not be over.
0: (laughs) I mean, look at it this way. Even if you just do death and funeral, it's two trades worth. That's it. It's, it's, you know, I mean, then if you throw in the rain, it gets, it gets longer, but uh, it's after this, um, you know, uh, this, this'll be a, a piece of cake for you.
1: Fair enough.
0: fair enough uh but scott again thank you so much for for being my guest for these episodes this really was a blast um you you will be back down the line uh again yes. I'll, I'll, I'll try to we'll make it a more manageable reading assignment uh, <laughs> but thank you very much thank you to our audience uh our, our listeners and viewers new and old i appreciate all of you And I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you could tune in for parts seven and eight over the next couple of weeks. I think they'll be uh, very, very special um, as these past episodes have been. So thank you all. We will see you next week. And of course, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Shegal, music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter, and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com
1: to explore more of my film and podcast projects.